Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, and so much more, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're going to look at the film that turned Jodorowsky into a worldwide sensation, 1970s El Topo. Joining me on this surreal trip are two amazing co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast, the heo to my El Topo. It's Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good. I'm worried you're going to abandon me with some monks with white gloves, but otherwise I feel pretty good. <laughs> I have a feeling you will get your revenge in time. Liam O'Donnell, uh, we're talking about El Topo today. Uh, this is a movie that people have a lot of opinions about. Some people are obsessive about. Do you have any concerns before we dive into it regarding maybe some of your interpretations or what people are going to respond with when you get them all wrong? Oh, sure, sure. No, uh-huh. I, I, I mean, I think uh, I think we've been pretty clear that we're not doing this as uh, Jodorowsky experts. You know, like we didn't come into this because we're like, oh, we know all there is to know. It, it was out of curiosity. And I think that part of curiosity is admitting all the things that you don't know. So I'm more than comfortable admitting uh, how much I don't know. And, and, and we talked about this on the first episode, but I want to reiterate, I think my response to a lot of these movies is about what they make me feel mm-hmm. and less about you know, discerning what it means, even though I know a lot of intellectual research and and consideration went into making this movie. Also, a lot of feeling in the moment. I mean, a lot of chaos went into making this movie as well. So I think my emotional response is going to be sufficient for me. I have been over the week, as uh, across the week, as I've been doing a little bit of research and reading old Jodorowsky interviews, I've been posting little segments from them on my social media. Uh, just recently today, as I was kind of struggling with the fact that I felt like I didn't understand anything, I put some of the more incomprehensible quotes on Twitter, and Jodorowsky Dune director uh, Frank Pavich replied simply with, The King. I think even he, who must have been delved into this material for a long time, recognizes that some of this... It's not as straightforward as, uh, as well, as I was going to say, as you might hope. I don't think that's what I would hope. I love the fact that it's almost impossible to break down some of this, that we're going to try in a way that I think is going to be very inviting, honestly. I mean, I think that's the name of the game when it comes to Jodowowski. We want this to be an inviting podcast, even though some of this is inscrutable. Uh, we're going to screw it all the same, right, Liam? <laughs> yeah, that's very fair. That's very fair. <laughs> we'll make it scrutable is what I'm trying to say. But a project of this magnitude requires a secret weapon, and completing our Triforce of Power is a writer, filmmaker, podcaster, and that's just to start. It's the great Julia Marchesi. How are you doing, Julia? Oh, I am fine and dandy. Very happy to be here talking about El Topo today. You know, I hadn't written this in the notes, but this is something that I'm very curious about, Julia. When was the first time you saw El Topo? Uh, so I first saw it at the New Beverly, and I remember very clearly seeing the trailer for it. And because the trailer is really bombastic, and the the narration <laughs> is like, "Be prepared to live the most wonderful experience of your life." It goes beyond westerns. It goes beyond religion. It's a spectacle, an experience for your life. And I'm like, "Uh huh, sure, right?" It's like, who? No, no. There's nothing that you could say that bombastic that it would ever live up to what they're actually hyping. You know. And then it actually lived up to it. And I was like, well, hot damn. Yes, it is. <laughs> All of those things. It's an, it's an incredible, incredible film. So this is the first one I saw of his films and the one that blew my mind and drew me in and made me fall in love with him. So it lies very near and dear to my heart. Um, although Holy Mountain is my favorite. So this well, is the well, first. We'll, we'll get there. Though. You we're, can't we're have one without there. the other, really. They're kind of like interchangeable. <laughs> I mean, not interchangeable, but connected. Absolutely. Liam, uh, have you had a chance to see El Topo on the big screen? 
Oh, God, no. I would love that. That would make me very happy. Um, I've actually, yeah, I don't think I've seen any of his films on the big screen, which is oh, they're amazing on the a, big screen. A deep, yeah, yeah. a deep, deep disappointment. Um, I would travel back to Philadelphia if uh, our friends at Exhumed Films would, would screen El Topo. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if they ever would. And I don't know what's going on in Chicago. If someone out here screens El Topo or Holy Mountain or Santa Sangre, basically anything, I, I would come out and see it <laughs> because I just think that would be an amazing experience. Again, not that I don't appreciate them in my home theater, but the experience in a, in a real theater would be unbelievable, I think. You know, one of the things that uh, I think it's important to make clear before we get started talking about the movie proper is the fact that there was a very long time that El Topo was not very easily available to people. Mm -hmm. uh, or the, the versions that were uh, being shown were edited or censored in some way. It wasn't, I think, until well into the 1990s that there was uh, a commonly available home version of it. So in terms of this obsessiveness, being able to pour over every frame, that is really only something that's been available to the average person really over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and we're lucky to live in a time now where not only are there multiple versions, there's still new versions of El Topo coming out. And as I think we all experience over the last few weeks, there's a lot of supplementary material that you can dive into if you so choose. Uh, it very likely, it did in my case, will leave you with a headache. Liam, uh, yeah, please, do you have something to say there? Yeah, in, in one of the many interviews I watched with uh, uh, Jodorowsky, he blamed the disappearance of El Topo for some 30 years on his father in that he had treated the, the man who owned the distribution rights to the movie as a father figure. So, of course, when he disappointed him, he got very mad and he uh, insulted him deeply. And they didn't reconcile for almost 30 years. So he's like, so in reality, you couldn't see this movie for a long time because of my father. So that was Alan Klein, right, who bought yes. the rights to yep. the film, uh, notorious uh, manager for the Rolling Stones. I know that they feuded. I was actually just reading an interview yesterday which said that right before Alan Klein passed away, they actually got together and I guess uh, hashed out all of their differences. Of course, it ha basically was happening on Alan Klein's deathbed, but I, it's nice to think that these things can happen if indeed that actually happened at all. Uh, Liam, have you ever seen the trailer for El Topo, the one that uh, Julia was referring to? Oh, I've seen the trailer many times, actually. It's a favorite of basically people who like to show you trailers classic trailers if you if you have this one on film you better you better run it cuz it's amazing it it is exactly as bombastic as julia suggested it basically promises that you are seeing something that's more than a film that you are seeing basically a transcendent psychological experience and no movie could possibly live up to it unless it was 1970s El Topo directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, before we get into talking about the movie proper, I wanted for us to talk a little bit about its positioning as the first midnight movie. Now we would just referred uh, briefly to the fact that Alan Klein had the rights to, I guess, distribute the film. And that came about because it was originally shown at the Elgin theater in New York. So my, my understanding is that Jodorowsky completed this film with the knowledge that he would never be able to show it in Mexico where it was filmed. That the you know that, that they would censor it to such an extent that uh, even doing like a roadshow version of it, that people were not going to be able to see it. And at that time, he had sort of a um, a view of America as a place that was very kind of pure. Maybe that's not the right word, but he certainly th thought of it as the place where it had to break through. So he brought it to New York, and the only place that would show this movie was this Elgin Theater, and they would only show it after all the other movies in the day were shown, at midnight. And slowly, 
or actually, I guess not that slowly, fairly quickly because of the era that it was, uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, young people often smoking marijuana would attend these uh, viewings at midnight, and that established it as this sort of cult item. And in particular, it was established when John Lennon and Yoko Ono came to see it, I guess, repeatedly, and the word got out that the cool thing to do in New York was to go see at midnight El Topo. And uh, from that point forward, it showed at midnight almost, uh, I guess, every night for uh, almost a year and became the first midnight movie. Now, Liam, so do you cool. have any? Yeah, it's so cool, right? And of course, the midnight movie tradition is something that that is now so it's such a part of our culture that what we call movies midnight movies. But at that point, when El Topo came out, that wasn't even right, uh, uh, that is wasn't even something that existed. I mean, at the Toronto International Film Festival, the um, the genre items are the midnight movie items, and they show them at midnight every night. That is like the grand child of El Topo. <laughs> every time that there's a screening at the, the Toronto International Film Festival, it came from these beginnings. I guess I wanted to ask, even though that this is not directly connected to Jodorowsky's work, do either of you have any memorable midnight movie experiences? I want to start with you, Julia. I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show is uh, a cornerstone to my life, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, I saw it for the first time when I was 12, and which is far too young for Rocky Horror Picture Show, but <laughs> awesome for me. Um, and the thing that I loved about it is that it's made it, it was something that was just more than a movie. I had never been somewhere where you don't just sit and be quiet. Oh, you're getting up and you're singing, you're dancing, you're throwing things, you're dancing with other people, everybody's dressed up, and it's this whole event. And that really changed my perception of what film could be and made me fall in love with it. So I've seen that, you know, a, a billion times at midnight. And I think I love midnight movies because it's the the thing about it is because you're at this inconvenient time, you're only getting people there who really want to be there. Right. And there's nothing better than watching a movie with people who are enthusiastic and want to see that film. And that's what it's about. And I think that's why I liked working at the New Beverly because it kind of felt like a midnight movie audience all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like a very specific and special feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you captured it very well. Uh, and of course, it begets a lot of different midnight movies throughout the 1970s, uh, like The Heart of They Come, Eraserhead. You mentioned The Rocky Horror Picture Show might be the, the most uh, renowned midnight movie. Liam O'Donnell, have you had any midnight movie experiences? It's funny, Julia, that you bring up Rocky Horror Picture Show because um, I was so afraid to go. That I never went. Um, but I also saw it far too young. One of the first VHS tapes that my mom got from our friends uh, that they had taped off of cable was Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I was uh, nine years old when I was watching Ooh. that, which was uh, maybe a bad idea. But by the time I found out about the live show in high school, I was just so easily embarrassed. I just was like, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. And I regret it so much because in the Philadelphia area, there was a theater near my house called the Harwin that had like a notorious one that people traveled to from from further away. And I never got to experience it. And it's one of my biggest regrets uh, is having missed that. For me, midnight movies weren't really a thing in the traditional sense. I I went to movies at midnight, but that's because. Um, of premieres. You guys remember when, the, before they started just saying the movie premieres on Friday, but actually we'll just show it on Thursday night at eight o'clock. Right. There was, there was a point where mm -hmm. they really kept them to, it premieres on Friday. So Thursday at midnight, we're doing it. And <laughs> I, I, that the first experience I had with that, this is so random because it's not a midnight movie in any way was Mortal Kombat. 
<laughs> I went to a midnight screening of Mortal Kombat, and the entire row in front of us was a uh, was a uh, I don't want to say gang, but let's say a group of friends who get into fights a lot, and uh, and. Uh, I, famously they had taken up the whole row and then me and my friends were sitting there we were all like 15 maybe and this guy came up and he wanted us to just move so he could sit behind his friends and his friends didn't say a word and we were like no and this dude was like uh, it's going to be a problem if you don't move and little us we were so scared but we just looked at each other we were just like no and he went <laughs> off he was so mad he went off and the dudes in front of us all turned around they were like that's right you tell him oh yeah <laughs> we got your back man screw that all of his friends they were whatever and then the whole movie every time the soundtrack would come on and that mortal Kombat, the entire row of dudes would stand up and high five every time Mortal Kombat would come on, like the the words Mortal Kombat would come over the soundtrack. They would all get up and high five and chest bump and stuff, and it was crazy. It sounds very broy, uh, but this particular group of fighting friends, uh, they were all Filipino, and mm-hmm. so um, it was kind of broy, but it was also kind of like hip hoppy at the same time. It's kind of cool. Anyways, point being, that was my first midnight movie, and it wasn't until I started going to film fest in college that I found out like, oh, midnight is when you show not a movie you're trying to like hype up to make money it's when you show a movie that like you're not (laughs) sure you want to show at another time it's like let's just play it at midnight i didn't have that experience even though i had lots of experience staying up late to go to movies uh they were just nerd movies and not actually like what we would think of as midnight movies this might be the only podcast that has mentions of both paul ws anderson and alejandro jodorowsky (laughs) fair fair Uh, like yourself, Liam, most of my experiences with midnight movies are not the traditional kinds of midnight movies, not ones that would necessarily be appropriate to go on about, such as, I don't know, a screening of Mortal Kombat. Uh, <laughs> simply inappropriate <laughs> under the circumstances. Uh, but I do love this kind of idea of this concept being brought forth for the first time. You know, 1970, New York City, the coolest of the cool. Uh, Jodorowsky himself mentions in, in several interviews that he would sometimes do introductions to the movie and he would, and, and uh, Jodorowsky is kind of notoriously uh, not anti-drug, but someone who does not take drugs that he gets his psychedelics in other ways, let's say. And he would go up to the front of the movie theater and people would be passing him joints to the, to the uh, extent that he would have a handful of, of marijuana cigarettes uh, by the time he got to the front to do his little introduction. And I mean, it's just, I think, very representative of a time period, but just the idea that it has evolved and has led to so many kind of cult items and cult material since then. Uh, I mean, we're really back at the beginning here. And speaking of back at the beginning, it should be noted that F- Fando and Lease, even though it's very commonly available now, at the time that El Topo was uh, was available to watch in New York City at these midnight screenings, people had not seen it. It would not been distributed widely. We talked before in our uh, first episode about the riots that that uh, started when they showed it at the screenings at the um, at its premiere. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't there. It was not being screened throughout the U.S. So for I would say every single person who would have seen El Topo in 1970, this was their first experience with Jodorowsky. This was their first experience with him as a performer and the first experience with him uh, and the kind of material that he wanted to present on the screen. So you can imagine. I'm so glad that I get to be, it got to be my first one too. So I feel like I'm on that wave as well. And also, you know, I'm a Beatles junkie. So the fact that that John Lennon gave it a big thumbs up and like helped Jodorowsky became who he is. all right, John Lennon for the win. Yeah, I mean that's so cool, right? Uh, and you can, 
You can also see how it would take a figure with the stature of John Lennon to point at something and say, this is cool. And that would be enough. You know, that Mm -hmm. would be enough for everyone to flock to see this. Uh, One of the things I would love to uh, to to read would be interviews with people who did see it at that time period, people who had no idea what they were into. But you can also see how evolving out of that, those ads, that trailer with these bombastic statements could, of course, come because for for people who were staying up till midnight and taking all sorts of drugs and watching this movie, this was more than a movie. And uh, that's one of the things that I want to talk about on this episode of Jodowowski is say that you're watching it in the middle of the day while your dog is staring at you and your wife is sitting next to you or you are uh, watching it in the morning on your iPhone or whatever that can these feelings that these intense feelings towards this film still exist and is it even somewhat inappropriate to experience the movie in these different ways uh it's one of the things that we have the option to do now um i think it's also perfect that he called it el topo right right which means the mole uh mm-hmm. for you know and it, it's kind of the beginning of underground cinema so it's this like perfect title for this perfect wave to begin absolutely yes the, and in, on this episode of Jodowski. We are the moles and we're taking El Topo from the underground. We're bringing it to the light and we may have to shy away at times, but we're going to uh, experience it, <laughs> experience it in as much detail as possible. Uh, let us take a break. When we return, it's time. We're going to talk about the mole. We're going to talk about El Topo from the year 1970 right after this. Be prepared to live the most wonderful experience of your life. Alejandro Jodorowsky's film classic, El Topo. A mysterious black-clad gunfighter wanders a mystical western landscape encountering multiple bizarre characters. That is an extremely simplified version of the plot of 1970's El Topo, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, starring Jodorowsky himself as the character of El Topo in various forms. And in fact, in uh, several interviews, Jodorowsky said that he cast himself. Uh, he wasn't originally intending to, but he did because all of the actors in Mexico that he approached, they were unwilling to go through the physical transformations that the character does throughout the movie because a lot of them worked in television. So the idea of growing a big bushy beard or shaving their head is not something they were willing to do. Jodorowsky, though, he was all in when it came to El Topo. Uh, not a lot of necessarily familiar to Western audience uh, faces in the in the film outside of Brontus Jodorowsky as Hio, El Topo's son. You also have Alfonso Aro, the director of Like Water for Chocolate. He shows up as one of the banditos in the first segment of the film, Uh, but we'll talk about some of the performances a little bit later. I do want to go back to that description of the plot, however. Like I said, it doesn't really encompass what you see in it, but one thing that does is Jodorowsky himself. Uh, We're going to talk about at the end of this episode, Sons of El Topo, a comic series that was adapted from Jodorowsky's concept for the sequel to El Topo. Uh, We've all read the first two volumes of it. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. In his introduction, Jodorowsky actually does a really fine summation himself. Julia, could you read that for us? Yes. So Jodorowsky describes El Topo. El Topo was an outlaw who, in throwing the doors to his heart wide open, became a saint able to work the greatest of miracles. That's a little better. 
That is much, much better. (laughs) And miracles, especially, right? Because we do see miracles on display and miracles is a good word of, of, to use in regards to what you see in this film, uh, simply on really two levels. One, that there is a lot of religious iconography in this movie that we'll dig into to some extent. I don't want to get kind of stuck in the mud in regards to it. Like I said, approachable. <laughs> but also <laughs> the fact that a filmmaker like Jodorowsky, who had not had a lot of experience at that time, and when you read about his approach to making this movie, uh, you know, and, and casting it, I mean, basically just finding people who looked the part or were willing to be part of it, that it's a miracle that this movie is in any way comprehensible, if you even find it comprehensible, but the fact that this movie has such an incredible look and has uh, a lot of these amazing performances and a lot of these amazing moments, it's one of those examples, one of those rare examples where perhaps a director that isn't as technically competent, that it actually adds to the film as opposed to taking away from it because what you see is a more pure vision of what he was trying to do. I always like to think about Jodorowsky trying to explain this to the people who are in the movie, what's happening. And I, I love to think about it because I can just see his, you know, he's so animated and just see him, you know, and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, I'm, I'm naked, yes, okay, and now he's licking my shoes, got it, okay, you know, just like this <laughs> crazy vision that I'm sure he was able to impart to them that, you know, is is just so beautiful. And I think this film is amazing because it, it shouldn't work, really. There's so much going on. It should just be a mess, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. beautiful and, like, artfully. It's what I want. When you say the words art film, this is what I want. I want yes, this. Absolutely. And in fact, when you use those words art film, I think that certain people who maybe have not watched a lot of <laughs> a lot of films that have been uh, painted with that brush, let's say, they think they're going to watch something slow and ponderous and boring. And I will say, whatever your feelings are on El Topo, it is not slow and it is not ponderous. There is always something going on, even if God knows what the hell any of it means. Uh, <laughs> and that comes down to the title itself. The movie starts with um, an explanation of El Topo, that it means the mole. The mole is an animal that digs tunnels underground, searching for the sun. Sometimes his journey leads him to the surface. When he looks at the sun, he is blinded. Now, uh, I don't actually think that's true (laughs) in regards to what moles actually do, but uh, I think that actually is representative of a lot in this movie anyway. We're not supposed to necessarily find literal truth in a lot of what's being said to us. It's about exploring. It's about finding uh, more truth. But I do think that this statement is about a spiritual journey. And I wanna turn over to you for a second, Liam. Do you interpret the plot of El Topo as as being about a search for spiritual meaning in one's life? Oh, definitely. I think, well, and when I think about that, I think about that in in two ways. One is that um, El Topo, the character, is looking for himself, that, that clearly there's something that he is in search of. Um, and and in each of these stages, you know, in in the commentary, uh, Yodorowsky referred to them as little films, you know, because he couldn't <laughs> shoot a feature and not violate all kinds of laws, so <laughs> he did little mini films that become one movie. Uh, that that in each of these are different stages and and movements of his search. Um, but I also think in the way that the film is maybe intentionally or unintentionally uh, kind of autobiographical, it is very much about the search that uh, Yodorowsky is on. I mean, it's it's very telling this moment we open up with. He has his son there, and he says to his son, you're seven years old, and you are a man. 
And then um, that seems like a crazy thing to happen. It seems like we're already starting in a weird, abstract place. Only it is one of the most autobiographical parts of the movie. That's what his dad did to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're we're starting both in a magic place and in a place that is written in his own life. And I think that is what is, um, for me, so telling about the spiritual journey of this thing is that uh, it, it actually it actually tells maybe not a direct narrative, but a narrative I think is relatable in a certain kind of, uh, you know, like a, like a religious story sort of way, you know what I mean? Like however you want to think of that as a fabulation or as a parable or whatever it is, but it also has some direct, more literary metaphorical relationships to himself as the artist, as the creator, as the person who like, you know, this movie is made in debt. Right. This is a film he's pulling out as like a last ditch attempt to make a movie. <laughs> um, and and honestly, until, as we discussed, this film gets the blessing of John Lennon and suddenly they are making all this money. They might go to jail, you know, because they owe 400 grand in, in unpaid <laughs> checks. So, like, you know, the, the desperation here is not just metaf- not just in the sense of the ideas that El Topo is doing in the narrative, but then the people on set are like devoted and, and intense. I was thinking about as as Julia talked about what he might have told his actors and his people on the commentary. He talks about how the the townspeople in the first scene, a bunch of them got sunstroke because he yelled at them. Don't mm-hmm. move, don't move. That's and right. then he just moved on, and they just kept laying there, and some of them got really sick because they were in the sun too long, and he just didn't occur to him to whatever. And I thought, I wonder how often that happens. He's so in his creative moment, the idea that, like, you got to tell these people what to do next. It's, like, not even there. He's just this, like, you know, madman on set. I don't know. I don't know what to make <laughs> of it uh, uh, other than that it's, you know, it. it the, I think the spiritual journey is not just for El Topo. It seems like it's for him and, and perhaps the whole cast out there in the desert kind of going crazy with it. That does speak to something that I kind of want to make clear right at the beginning of our conversation, which is that we have all been steeped over the last little while in Jodorowsky content regarding El Topo, including many interviews with him about it. Uh, I think it's important for us in some ways to take a skeptical approach to how Jodorowsky sometimes describes his work. It has changed and evolved over time. And sometimes I don't know if some of these stories are apocryphal, if some of these stories are about myth building. Uh, that one, I, I think like, this is what we call him an unreliable narrator. Exactly. Yes. That is 100% the case. Though we are, of course, going to cite things that he said himself when it's appropriate. You just can never be entirely sure that what he said is actually what happened or if it just makes a really good story. I also want to mention that one of the genius things of El Topo is that it takes these heady concepts and it packages them in a genre that's extremely recognizable, the Western. And in particular, because it was made in Mexico and it's using these actually uh, already standing sets for a uh, American made, but uh, in the style of a spaghetti Western movie, that this feels very much, at least in the first segment, like a particularly surreal spaghetti Western. And I think that that made it a lot more palatable than something like Fando and Liss, which uh, took its story structure in a lot more... Uh, less tangible places. But I want to go back to what I asked uh, Liam about. Julia, is that what you interpret the overall plot of El Topo to be about some sort of spiritual journey? 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, I think that anybody will tell you that this movie kind of feels like two movies because you yes. have yeah. this Western beginning and mm-hmm. then there's the transformation of the character into this saint. And then you have the second half where it's all about this. It's the same person, but now he's just become a saint. He's become a different person. So um, and it's interesting to me because I'm, as you both know, a big Stephen King nerd mm-hmm. and uh, I love the Gunslinger and, and the Dark mm-hmm. Tower series. And I didn't understand Westerns until I read that because I you don't ever get um, like the lead character in a Western, you never get their backstory. So they're just right. kind of this very mysterious person. But then I'm like, I don't know who they are. I don't know why they're acting like this. And when the, and the, when the Dark Tower series where you get this kind of like whole backstory about who this person is, and I'm like, okay, I get it now. I understand it now. And honestly, you know, and you have this move, this gunslinger, right? Like this gunslinger who has, and he has a boy that he's taking with him on this journey following through the desert. So it felt very uh, gunslingery to me, which I was like, oh, I'd never made the connection before, but I love that. Um, and I love, but I, you know, it, it does feel like I, I think I enjoy the first half more, mm-hmm. but I think that he probably thinks the second half is the more important half, like more of like what he's trying to say. And in fact, as we discuss it, we're going to actually be splitting the movie into three parts, which will either become fairly clear when we start uh, diving into them, mostly just to make it a little bit easier to break down uh, our thoughts on it, simply because this is such a dense movie and there's so much to talk about in regards to it. Uh, For those who who are very familiar with the movie, which I'm guessing if you're listening, you are, those segments will be up until the point where Hio is abandoned will be the end of the first part. The second part will end at the part where the uh, lady in black takes Mara and then he is uh, basically shot uh, into uh, into uh, shot into stigmata wounds. And then the third segment will be everything following that, his kind of rebirth uh, and uh, his uh, ingratiation with the, the town. Uh, and I think that it splits fairly neatly into those three segments. One thing I do want to talk about, though, before we get into the movie... Uh, the first part of the movie, let's say, is something that I always come back to with El Topo, which is the soundtrack composed by Jodorowsky himself. Uh, I love the soundtrack to this movie. Liam, I know that you're a music guy. Uh, It does not have kind of a traditional spaghetti Western soundtrack. It doesn't have like a Morricone type feel to it. In some ways, it kind of, um, it has these repeated semi-bombastic themes. It feels very much a unique Thing. It doesn't really feel like a lot of the same kind of music you would hear in films at that time, while still feeling entirely appropriate to this movie. Your thoughts on the soundtrack to El Topo? I mean, I also really like it, and I think it really fits, especially um, some of the like more lilting kind of flute parts I find really haunting. Like They really mm-hmm. kind of stick with me. Um, I don't know, though, as much as it fits with the movie. It, this is an interesting phenomenon, right? The idea that there are some soundtracks that we remember because of how they work with the film. And then there are some soundtracks that people just enjoy on their own, you know, that they just are like, this is, I want this record and I just want to listen to it. Right. right, right. And, and I think we assume those are the same things, but there are plenty of movies I really love that I don't need a record of the soundtrack. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And, and I don't know yet about this one because it's, I've never listened to it on its own to know like, am I going to like this or not? You know, like what a good example for me is, the uh, Halloween soundtrack, right? It's it's very impactful for me when I'm watching the movie, but I have it on vinyl. I don't listen to it that much. I don't find it as interesting without the film for me. Um, mm. Some of 
his other soundtracks I find very interesting without the film. Um, for this one, I, I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. I also am just confused by it in the sense of like it does kind of go all over the place. And I wonder mm-hmm. one of the one of the fabulations of Jodorowsky was his random uh, way of making the soundtrack. When I listen to it, I wonder if that's not untrue I, again we don't know but you know uh, the, the fact that it is sort of unpredictable in, in what it does I, I sometimes wonder like did he really like s- you know put this together as someone unfamiliar with music just sort of pasting things together right right it actually comes down to the sound design as a whole which right. is very interesting in el topo and i always wonder when he's talking about these things when it comes to the music when it comes to the sound if things are forced upon him by budget but then he turns them into a positive instead right one of the things in this movie is that uh and this isn't unusual uh for movies of this time period particularly uh, non-american movies is that everything is dubbed in this film Uh, all the characters are dubbed all the sound effects are dubbed and in fact the el topo character is not voiced by jodorowsky himself and it seems that most of the characters in the movie are not voiced by the people who actually played those roles uh they the the character of mara i guess was dubbed by a 70 year old woman uh sometimes male characters are dubbed by females it 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 is a way for him to add an extra layer of craft on top of the actual filmmaking process that i think is really unique and it's something that you see with the italian filmmakers with gels throughout the 70s where they use sound in that very specific kind of way but you don't see that in a lot of american movies and i think it's another thing that probably people were really reacting to uh, when they saw El Topo for the first time in uh, in the U.S. Uh, Julia, do you have any thoughts on the soundtrack? Does it Do you react to it like Liam does? Do you think you'd listen to it on its own? Uh, I don't know if I'd listen to it on its own, but it, it is a very kind of all over the place kind of soundtrack, so it'd be hard to do one thing to do it. Um, <laughs> right. But I think there's no way that it couldn't be him doing this, I think. I think the thing that I like about this movie is you can tell that it's one man's vision to the tooth, like mm-hmm. everything is to his specifications. And so I think to have all of that so specific and not also do the music would seem strange. So I like that it really is even everything you're hearing and everything you're seeing was done by him. So let's dive into the movie El Topo. As I uh, mentioned previously, we're going to kind of split it into three parts. Uh, During the first part, uh, we have the gunslinger El Topo, who travels, as we've already mentioned, with his naked seven-year-old son, played by Jodorowsky's actual son, who at that point in his life had had no relationship with his father at all. Uh, Apparently, they had only been uh, living together uh, for a few months, and then he wanted this to be kind of symbolic of the start of their relationship to some extent. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They murder a group of bandits uh, in revenge for the massacre, a very violent massacre that we see in the film of an entire village. Um, the bandits themselves are led by a colonel uh, who is somewhat childlike uh, and is being propped up by a woman named Mara, uh, who is liberated by El Topo at the end of this segment. El Topo falls in love with Mara, rides off with her, and abandons his son uh, at the monastery that the bandits had previously occupied. I want to start with some general thoughts on this segment first. Going back to you, Julia, you mentioned before that you liked the first half of this movie a little bit more than the second half, or I guess the second segment, however you want to split it. Uh, what, what do you think of this as an opening, and how how do you feel like you reacted to it the first time you saw it? I think it's really like the opening 
five minutes are the most, you know, so beautiful and so unusual and so intriguing. You know, you have this, you know, the gunslinger in this fantastic outfit looking so fucking cool. And mm-hmm. then you have his son who's just naked wearing like a hat and a moccasin. You're like, why is this kid <laughs> naked? I don't know. Why is he making him bury these things? You're like, what is their relationship? Where and carrying an umbrella, audience? an umbrella yeah. in the desert. Well, I mean, it's good to keep the sun off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, you're right. Absolutely. Hat. But, you know, we've obviously come in in the middle of the story because they're they're coming from somewhere. They're going mm-hmm. to somewhere, but we don't see the beginning of the journey. So I like that they kind of put you in right in the middle of it. And then you're trying to figure out what's happening as they are. Um, and it's, you know, this first segment is so throwing you in this world that's so you don't know what's happening. All of the bandits are so unusual. You have the colonel who's so strange. You have these monks who are getting like whipped in the ass with cactus and being ridden. Like it's just like so overwhelming like in just like the first half hour you have no idea where the movie's going to go because you realize it's going to keep going at this pace which it does so it's just this kind of throwing you in the deep end from the exact beginning of the film it kind of feels this whole segment at like a, a compressed particularly i think i mentioned a particularly surreal version of a spaghetti western right because you get the man in black you get the man with no name who's el topo again there's always something a little strange in this case accompanied by his naked seven-year-old but going in and getting revenge for this massacre from this colonel right these colonel characters you see in a lot of these different spaghetti westerns all of these kind of degenerates under him the the woman who he falls for i mean these are all kind of archetypes that you see in a lot of these movies but they're all played in such different ways from the levels of violence that we see uh, and and the amount of blood that's on screen and animal violence, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, but also the fact that there's a child involved. They, they have that incredible sequence where one of the bandits uh, blows up a balloon, puts it on the ground, and they use this, this high-pitched sound of the balloon leaking air to mark the beginning of their, their gun duel. Just incredibly done. But again, it also has that kind of rough, edge to it. This isn't Leone uh, making this film. This is Jodorowsky all the way. Liam, over to you. Your feelings, your interpretations, your thoughts on uh, this segment of El Topo. Well, I think it's interesting for me because it's the part of the film that I think you sort of named, Doug, feels the most like a Western. Mm-hmm. Even though we get these masters later, none of those moments for me feel very related to the genre that this is sort of starting in. And this, it feels like he's messing with multiple genres to tell his narrative. So this is a Western, right? And because it's a Western, it's the part that deals with Western ideals, i.e. Christianity. And so he observes this horrible sort of massacre, and so he goes on a quest for vengeance, which is, if we're honest, really the morality of Westerns oftentimes boils down to you did a wrong thing and now you must die. So Mm -hmm. that's what he's going to do. They've done a wrong thing and now they must die. And what he discovers is uh, a colonel who has taken over where these, you know, monks live and has made himself God. Uh, In reality, he's a hurting child, which in a way... Jodorowsky also identifies with because he is himself a hurting child. And uh, and yet through symbols of power, which are all fake bull crap, he slowly builds himself up until he is God. And then he is the false God in the place where the other God used to be. And so on one hand, this section functions both as a criticism of the church because of the ways that the church is basically supporting Pinochet and other dictators and things like that. Um, but also... It has the core of something which I think I get from Jodorowsky a lot, which is that the thing itself, and I would argue there is no such thing, but in theory, the thing itself, the core of what it is, Christianity, is not so bad. You know, the monks aren't so bad. The thing itself is not so bad, but this guy's bad. And as the 
god slash father figure, inevitably El Topo has to humiliate him and destroy him. And so, um, in a sense, and, and when when he does destroy him, he says, "I am God." Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the point, right? Like what he's giving you, I think, is not just a religious spiritual journey, though that's the immediate lens through which I see it. And I'm sure a lot of people see it. It's also this psychological thing. Like he has destroyed the father. So now he is the father, you know? And then the first thing he does as the father is abandon his son. And mm-hmm. I think that that, you know, that, that there's something going on there. And you could probably abstract it more. I'm sure he's also thinking about artistic, you know, uh, license and going off and he has to choose between his love and his responsibilities and all that kind of stuff. But um, what I think about it when I'm watching it more is I think the portrayal of the Colonel is so insightful. Like whether this was in 1970, people were watching this or now, I I, I would be surprised if people watch that part and don't immediately connect with it. Like, oh, yes, this is what power is. Power is a baby (laughs) who puts on a bunch of symbols and then acts like he's in charge, you know? Um, Also, not to interrupt, but on on the commentary, you mentioned Pinochet a moment ago. On the commentary, uh, Jodorowsky mentions that at the time, like when he's talked about the film since, he always expected that Pinochet was a direct uh, influence on the character. But it wasn't because he didn't rise to power until 1972. But right. it just shows you how universal it is that we've all seen people in these positions of power. And I think Jodorowsky even mentions that he, you know, this, the one of the things that that typified Pinochet was how much he hated art and how he he didn't have any respect for it. And that's something that he just can't stand for at all. Yeah. Well, and, and because he was he was selfish and brutal and stupid. And that stupid. That, that's right. Yeah. And that's sort of what this character is, right? That everything about him is 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 bad, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and so much so that his disciples are pretty joyful when when El Topo humiliates him. Like even though th- this is going to be their destruction as well, they just love to see it. They just they fucking love to see it. The other parts I just wanted to mention about that was the brutality of them. That on one hand, that's a representation of power, sort of randomly killing peasants. On the other hand, not an uncommon theme in Westerns. It's like mm-hmm. he manages both to critique this larger thing and the thing he's directly referencing, Westerns themselves. And one of his criticisms was making the bandits uh, sort of caricatures of gay stereotypes mm-hmm. because in his mind, not only is he you know sort of showing gay characters, he's also you know directly critiquing this tough guy image that all these films are all so masculine. They're all built on, you know, every, not every, I shouldn't say every, but a lot of Westerns are like, it's one tough penis against another. And that's what matters, is this sort of phallic battle of violence. And he like starts there and somehow criticizes at the same time. It's really insightful. And to me, the easiest part to relate to in my mind, like I think we just get more difficult as time moves on from this point. I do like the idea that this search for spiritual transcendence that is in this package of a of a Western, where you have this character who does the things that your hero, quote unquote hero character is supposed to do, which is get this revenge, which is to take this woman away from this terrible situation, which is ride off into the sunset. But we're not left feeling good about this character after he abandons his child, which right. again is something that you could say that Jodorowsky in some way did in real life. And that's what I want to talk about now just for a little bit. Uh, Julia, you mentioned the opening of the film. We see El Topo, um, he, with his son, again, played by his real son, Hio in the film, that they they bury a uh, childhood toy, a uh, like a teddy bear, 
and a photo that Jodorowsky has said for many years was a photo of um, Brontus's actual mother, though apparently that isn't the case. What do you interpret in this movie uh, in regards to what Jodorowsky is saying about his relationship, his real life relationship with his son? Or is it impossible to interpret without knowing a lot about the kind of background that went into the making of this movie? I feel like this doesn't come into click into place until you've seen uh, the dance of reality yeah. and mm-hmm. endless poetry and like get to know about his relationship with his father that he is so beautifully, you know, portrays and Brontus of course plays his father. So you have this incredibly crazy circular Brontusness going on. Um, <laughs> so I'm always nervous about what he puts his children through in when he makes these movies, but he always gets such great performances out of them as well. So I think when you know a little bit more about him that you know a lot of this is about his dad right it's like him working through his relationship with his own dad and i think Mm -hmm. that that's great that he's able to make this art that's also cathartic for him and i think catharsis through art is one of the things that will typify a lot of what we're going to find out about jodorowsky as he delves into psycho magic and and that from my understanding of it at the very least and uh, we'll be talking about that in future episodes i do want to say that one of the things that's striking about el topo is not just the level of violence but how some of that violence is specifically put upon children uh, that you see corpses of children that one of the very first things you see is a kind of a pike jutting up from the earth with a a child that has been uh, murdered and bleeding on top of it. I mean, just really disturbing imagery, especially when you have a a child at his most vulnerable on the back of that horse, along with El Topo himself. Uh, It is something that that you really, that kind of lingers, that imagery does after the film. Liam, you, uh, you watched a documentary with Brontus in regards to this film and his role in it. Uh, What did you take away from that? Well, I think that um, as far as uh, involving Brontus, I think for, from Brontus's point of view, this was partly about his relationship with his father, but more about uh, using someone to represent the child that he felt connected to because the child is also him, as Julie already said. Like, this is you know, he is El Topo. He is the child. In some ways, he's also the colonel. You know what I mean? Like right. that That a lot of this is because the story he's telling is to some extent a personal one. And, and I think you get more of that vibe in the next section we're going to talk about when he mm-hmm. encounters each of the masters, you know, that this idea of your own sort of personal journey. And I think kind of tellingly, both Brontis and Jodorowsky suggest that the next part where because of the pressure put on him by the woman he's liberated, he's now going to go kill these masters, that this is all based on a false presumption. Because in in both that interview and in the commentary, they name, well, El Topo's already a master. He's searching <laughs> these people out because he's insecure, because he thinks mm-hmm. that there can he needs to be the one master. And he doesn't realize he already is that. He, he he's, he's motivated by other things, but he thinks he's finding himself, but he's not finding himself at all um and so like i i think that that is sort of represented in that relationship i know from you know at least from bronte's perspective now as an adult you know he just saw it as a fun experience you know he he understands why people are concerned for this naked little boy bearing a picture of his mom but he's like i don't know it's just a fun thing i did you know i wasn't naked the whole time i had a robe on you know it's just for the seeds and the the thing he got i guess at the time that still sticks with him now is how important this was this wasn't uh, a lark. This was something that was 
deadly important to his father, and he got to be a part of it. And that sort of was six with you. And honestly, I'm not surprised. Anything I did at seven, that's what I would probably remember too, is this idea of like, okay, this is very important and I'm a part of it, you know? So, um, you know, it's interesting. I do kind of wish that there was, you know, that he didn't, there was an alternate version where he doesn't leave his son behind. Right. Mm -hmm. That they go on this adventure together and how, like, how that would have been, I think, like, that would have been a very interesting sideline. I think he doesn't do that because part of what we're supposed to get is that this whole adventure is ill-conceived. So he chooses the wrong thing. He should have chose his son. And instead he chooses this, this woman. And, and, you know, I think, Jodorowsky and Brontis both uh, in the things that I watched named this as a period of time where Jodorowsky in his relationship with women was not positive. And so, you know, making her, maybe she doesn't come across as the villain, but she's certainly a source of weakness for him because he shouldn't be going on this mission in the first place is part of his, you know, working out his feelings on women, which apparently took him some time. And that, uh, you know, at least by Holy Mountain, he has some female characters that are part of a stronger part of the narrative. Whereas here, they seem, you know, we we get one who is uh, sort of leading him in the wrong way, and another one that maybe is just his female counterpart to some extent. So, you know, it, it is in that way not exactly the 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 view. At least now, modern uh, Yodo is is more thinks that he should have a more balanced picture of who women are and what they can sort of be in the narrative yeah though i don't think we should uh undermine that in the third section that there's a female character yes 100 well. yeah, yeah 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 um but though i also want to say along with that uh, since uh we're we're adding on to that that when we do talk about sons of el topo that some of those issues with women might still be reflective in some of the female characters in that as well uh, this is Al- alejandro jodorowsky doesn't make easy art you know so it's no. it <laughs> so it, it it always feels like you're tangling with things without necessarily knowing exactly what you're tangling with, or at least that's how I feel. And one of those things that I tangled with and had difficulty with in regards to El Topo is the amount of animal violence that's on display in this film. You see corpses of animals throughout the film. Uh, the very first scene when you see the town that is literally covered in blood with hundreds of people in the streets murdered, you also see dead animals with their guts strewn about. There's a segment later with uh, apparently a hundred or more dead rabbits on display. Now, I do want to mention, and again, this goes back to the stories that Jodorowsky sometimes tells. Um, Jodorowsky is a lifetime, lifelong, I should say, vegetarian. So uh, there, there is an element of recognition regarding the power of animal violence. He does say on the commentary that the animals that he uses all came from butcher shops. They were animals that were either diseased or dying or already dead that he was using for this purpose. Though in the interview I read from the El Topo book, he mentions that when it came to the rabbits that he killed them all himself because no one else was willing to, that he would he, he literally says that he karate chops them all on the back of the neck in order to kill every single one of the rabbits oh, uh, because it was such a, a gruesome job. I don't know what to believe, but all I want to get from either of you is whether animal violence on screen is ever justified in a film. I just want to know your thoughts on that, starting with you, Julia. 
Uh, no, it is not justified. I'm not okay with it. Uh, that is one of the things that I dislike about Jodorowsky's movies, and he does it in almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the thing when I try to explain his movies to people, I say he tries to make movies that are like life. So you're going to see really beautiful, amazing things, but you're also going to see really terrible, ugly things. And so I get that you need that huge spectrum, you know, and I feel like. To me, his films feel like he needs something that's going to shock you in nearly every frame. You know, like every person you meet, every character, every scene, like there's going to be something that's going to make you uncomfortable. Um, And that's something that he plays around with a lot. And I'm I'm great with shock value. Uh, Killing animals, uh, I'm not okay with. So I will not okay. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, not that this is probably an unusual movie to bring up at this point, uh, but certainly Cannibal Holocaust is one that comes to mind when it it comes to the level of animal violence. In the case of that movie, the animals were killed for the film. Jodorowsky, there is some confusion in regards to whether the animals were killed for it. I think he said that even when it comes to the rabbits, that they were... Uh, sick or something along those lines that that or they were purchased for the purpose of food I don't know uh, to me it might be splitting hairs to a certain extent if an animal would would not have died whether it wasn't for that splitting movie hairs <laughs> well you, you used a karate chop Liam your thoughts on animal violence in movie uh, movies is it ever appropriate I'm a little I'm a little less sensitive to the simple like corpses sure. like you know what I mean like the they're gross I'm unhappy about it but that doesn't concern me and in a sort of ethical way when he shoots when we see the Mm -hmm. shot bird now granted maybe he karate chopped all those rabbits maybe he didn't and that's also an issue i i want to believe that he didn't just murder a hundred rabbits for the film but there's always a possibility in movies that things could be you know bought dead whatever when we're watching you kill something Mm -hmm. for the film i'm bummed even when you're just filming a butcher, I don't need to see that. I just, it's just something that bums me out, even as a, you know, person who enjoys meat. And I realize the hypocrisy of all that, me feeling this way. It's just true. I don't need it in a movie. Uh, and, and knowing that in certain cases, you know, he definitely kills things on camera. That's, the, that to me is the way way too far if he bought a, a horse corpse and cut it open that's gross but that doesn't that you know right or wrong that doesn't bum me out it doesn't get under my skin i'm not worried about it in the same way but you know i don't even like birds i don't even care about birds <laughs> but when that bird dies on camera i'm seriously upset i've mm-hmm. i care more for that bird than i've ever cared for another bird in my life but it, there's just something about it where you're like well you didn't need it that come on that didn't need to happen and it doesn't enhance the film the film is not a better movie because we watched that bird die you know what i mean and that's how i feel about uh, about this and then the times i've seen it in his other movies it's never like oh i'm so glad you did that that really helped the movie you know julia mentioned the idea that there's an attempt in some way to shock in almost every sequence that's in this movie. One of the things that's used to shock is the level of violence and the level of blood on display. Jodorowsky mentioned uh, when talking about this movie that he was using some of the crew that Peckinpah used on the Wild Bunch, uh, which probably would have been the high point of uh, American 
film violence up to that time period. Still a very shockingly violent movie. El Topo, I think, <laughs> trumps it in a lot of different ways. Uh, even outside of the animal violence on display, there is a lot of people being shot, lots of bloody squibs, lots of bloody imagery. There's a part where someone gets a knife through the throat that is particularly bloody. Just want to get your thoughts before we move on to the second section of the movie. Is the violence in this movie excessive? I want to, uh, to keep with you for a second, Liam. Do you think the violence in El Topo is excessive? Uh, for me, no. Um, I don't. Fictional, fictional violence doesn't, in and of itself, bum me out. It, it is. It's within a context. When you make a particularly cruel decision, and I don't. I think it's only there to scandalize. And I think in the case of Yodorowsky, I have a complicated relationship because on one hand, he is trying to shock us, as we know, coming from that panic tradition where they're like, you know, the avant-garde isn't shocking enough. We need post-avant-garde and we need post-surrealism. We're going to be... We need even, to throw turtles. <laughs> yeah, we need to be even more shocking. So I know that that's part of it. But the other part of it, and I think he, you know, this is clear in a lot of his writing, is he's also trying to manufacture... Uh, a religious experience. He's he's thinking about uh, something stark and savage and brutal within religion, and uh, and I think that that is part of what's going on here. And so um, his willingness to embrace that is, in some ways, to me, uh, shockingly honest um, and and forthright. Uh, I think later on, maybe he, even though he still uses violence, he thinks of why he's using violence differently. I think right. he has different purposes for violence than he did originally, but uh, but no, in and of itself, it's not that shocking to me. I mean, in 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 a way, I've probably just been corrupted by other movies that <laughs> use violence in a way that's far less artful and mm -hmm. far less intentional, and is meant to be like fun. That like you know what I mean? Like that uses gore as a way to be silly, and this is not silly. Like at no point is he trying to be silly with the violence. Other parts of the movie are silly. I also think that the concept of shocking someone it takes on a negative connotation when it, that's not necessarily the case when we talk no, about it. Yeah, we're, we're shocking someone out of you know their their uh, the doldrums, let's say, or shocking them out of the position that they're in. In this movie, he's trying to elicit a reaction, and the amount of violence is part of that eliciting the reaction. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Liam. The fact is, uh, and I, I don't want to speak for Julia, but I can I can speak to a certain extent for for you, Liam, and for myself. The thing is, we watch a lot of violent movies. We we do, and probably even more I violent. Horror, I have a horror movie podcast, man. You think yeah. I listen? Yeah. I don't watch violent exactly. movies. I mean, I know it, right? And again, you're, and you're a, a fan of film films, and also, uh, and I know this, uh, Julia, a, a fan of films that are on the edge of uh, the mainstream, right? They're mm -hmm. not necessarily ones that that everyone is going to seek out or maybe you've even heard of. And a lot of times those movies rely on excessive content. So we've all seen our share of blood. I will say that even with that in mind, I was sometimes shaken a little bit by the violence in this movie, mostly because sometimes uh, it's, it's the kind of violence that you don't see in the kind of movies that I'm used to, whether it be the animal violence, whether it be the violence against children, whether it be the violence on kind of the mass violence that you see basically acts of genocide on, on display in this. It just really is, uh, the scope of it is such that I find that it lingers with me a little bit more. And that is both, I think, the intention and also uh, appropriate. Shouldn't the violence linger with me, right? Shouldn't violence have an impact on me? That's one of the things I like most about El Topo is that the violence doesn't just seem to be there for its own sake. Uh, Julia, just uh, finishing up our, our discussion on the first part of the movie, your thoughts, is the violence excessive in this movie? 
Yes, but I think it's supposed to be. Um, yes. I think that, you know, he's really working, a, he works a lot in grotesquerie. And I think that this is really mm. what it is. Like you're pushing everything as far as it'll possibly go. So it's not going to be minimal violence. It's going to be way too much. And, you know, it's stuff, you know, I like how much he works with gender as well. It's like you, you want to see women. Okay, we're going to show you, you know, these senior, senior students, women who are half undressed. How do you feel about that? And why do you mm -hmm. feel that way? And here's these, you know, you have, you know, we mentioned the, the monks and the bandits in the beginning, but you don't mention like yes they torture them with cactus and stuff but they also have this kind of sweet moment where they just want to dance with them yeah and they mm -hmm. just want to kiss them and like hold them and I'm like that, that's nice too like that's something that is a, a just a, a very brief part of this movie but i think there's are these touches of sweetness in there as well that gets overlooked um you know and obviously in the later parts there are like there is jokes and silliness and dancing and the, you know mm -hmm. with this this beginning part's very serious but there are these kind of little bits of it that are showing you that he's not just this completely hard man that he also sees and you know and he does kind of cast people with unusual faces and people who have unusual bodies and like but it's something that i, I don't think he, i don't feel like he's ever making fun of anybody i think he really just wants to show the scope of humanity in his works the sympathy he has for people who would normally in other films be othered is something that i think really comes through uh, even this early in his career. And it's something we'll talk about when we get to the third section of the film. But right now I want to talk about what happens after he abandons his son. Mara, uh, the character of Mara, who is uh, kind of rescued from this situation, she convinces him that before she can love him, he already loves her, before she can love him, he needs to be the best gunfighter in the world. He needs to take on the four great masters who live in the desert. Uh, with the aid of a woman in black um, who, who speaks with a man's voice, he tracks down the four masters, kills them all uh, through means of trickery. Once he's killed them all, the mysterious woman, the woman in black, she shoots him, she seduces Mara, and they leave him to die. Uh, I want to start again with some general thoughts on this section of the movie. I think it, when people think about El Tobo, they probably think about his encounters with the four masters. It's one of the things that I think lingers the most afterwards. I'm going to start with you uh, this time, Liam. Uh, what do you think of this section of the movie? Uh, and what do you think about these encounters with the four masters kind of overall? I think Julia said very insightfully that this reminded her of a Kung Fu movie. And I feel that right. way as well. Um, Thinking about it, I, I well, this idea again. We uh, let's let's preface again. We we should take everything that he says with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. But the, this idea that he is on a search, and he in each case is able to use, he's able to find the weakness of the master that he's facing. And it's worth mentioning that your your synopsis, Doug, was actually wrong, in that the final master wins. That's um, true. And in fact, you could say this whole movie, and we'll probably I probably will say this at the end, is about failure, right? This is his first the the first quest, I guess, is killing the colonel. He does he does all right with that. He fails. Uh, no, actually, colonel kills himself. That's true. That's true. But, but, but he does win. I don't think he feels mm. like a failure after that mission. Right. But this is a failure because in each case he wins through, as you said, trickery, and then the final master kills himself and takes away, takes away uh, his ability to 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 win. And that's part of the horror he feels is in each of these cases seeing these things. Now, meanwhile, I don't know, like you know, uh, the first master. So, so people know each of these masters too kind of represent uh, various sort of viewpoints. Uh, let's say philosophical slash religious ideas, you know. So the 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 first master is like his encounter with the East, and in in some ways, 
his 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 weakness is that he's so trusting and he right. doesn't think that he's going to be tricked, you know, or with the second master uh, he attacks the master's mother because he's so attached to the to the mother, and this is, you know, he's sort of like a uh, uh, Sufi, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, mystic, and you know, with right. in each... and who uses the tarot, which is yeah. notable simply because that's one of Jodorowsky's yeah. uh, the things that's most connected with him. Yeah, even the third master, you know, his whole thing is I, you know, I'll kill you with one bullet, and if that doesn't work, then that's it. It's just the one shot, and he he blocks it with the thing. So. Um, in in a sense, as I as I think about th- this section, it is sort of about this search for meaning, right? But he keeps he keeps thinking that as he defeats each of these masters, it will be like a, like in a kung fu movie, he would learn a new technique, and then after that master was defeated, he'd have that technique. But mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. Nothing changes for him each time he defeats one of these three. Nothing happens. And then with the fourth one, he doesn't even win. And I think what we're left with, despite this thing where, you know, he's technically the last master there is, is this feeling of utter defeat that, that there is no, I don't know, glory for him at the end, really, you know? And, and there's just something about that, that i found like super impactful and powerful. And it's not something that, I hear people talk about as much, like how much of at least this section, and I would argue the last section too, is essentially about failure uh, and 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 dealing with your own failure. I I'm not going to disagree with your interpretation because I actually I, I see it very similarly, but I will say that I do think that, and I, this isn't um, at odds with what you said at all, that encountering and even killing these four masters are still a necessary part of his eventual transcendence uh, in the third section that that when he like when he does this and when he is still left by Mara and the woman in black and he has this kind of breakdown and goes back and destroys the corpses of these four masters that this is part of him finding understanding and if not taking on the the powers let's say of these uh, different masters that that when he is then uh, left to die and left to kind of ponder for however many years that is supposed to take what he has gone through he does develop a level of understanding that is on par with the transcendence that all of these masters have so the only way that he could have reached that point was having gone through the process of murdering all of them even at the time it is a completely empty gesture no in fact that's not only do i think you're right about that and that's how i see it as well that's when we get there that's what i took into the graphic novels such that even though I we I am as uh, hungry as you are for whatever the finale is going to be to the story, <laughs> I already know what it's going to be because it's following a pattern that I think he established in El Topo. So right. while I don't know the details, I know generally what's going to happen because it's so clear he's following the same theme of, I mean, to to put it in a in a. Uh, in a Christian way, though I don't think that's the only way to, to look at it. You know, El Topo has to go into the tomb and, and into hell before he can ascend, mm-hmm. or he has to, you know, go where, whatever the, whatever the, the, the nadir is, we want to, we want a metaphor here. That's what's happening to him. And I can see that happening in this sequel as well. Right. Absolutely. Over to you, Julia. Your uh, your thoughts on this section of the film. You mentioned before that that you kind of like the first half more than the second. D- is the first half encompassed in this section as well? Yeah, I guess I kind of, for me, it's like after he wakes up right. as, right. the, yeah. as 
think mm-hmm. is kind of the second It half. feels like um, a very different movie after that. It for does. Sure. It does. Um, so again, I, I felt this time watching it a kind of uh, Dark Tower gunslinger uh, parallel. So there's mm-hmm. a saying in the Dark Tower, the cause is a wheel, fate is a wheel, right? It's mm-hmm. a circle. And so he's, El Topo in this says, the desert is a circle. To find the masters, we have to travel on a spiral. So it really is. He just ends up where he started. And so, it, but, you know, he's gone through everything, but then he's back, you know, because he does, he goes through the masters, one, two, three, four, and then goes backwards, four, three, two, one, and goes back to see all their corpses where the, you know, the rabbits set on fire and he goes, visits them again. So it is this, this kind of circular motion. I think it's really interesting that you have him, which he, you know, seems to have this kind of moral code, right, where he, the, the, the bandits massacred these people and now they have to have his revenge so he, he has yeah. this morality even though he is kind of a thief and a gunslinger but then he he beats them all through tricking them it's yeah. not actually a fair fight at all so you know I think that that may be a, about how he feels about his failure as well as like he didn't actually win he kind of just tricked them um, so it's kind of not of kind of a pure win I guess as it were like he right. didn't do it in a pure way um so I, I think this I think this the all of the different masters are really interesting. I love how different they are. I mm-hmm. love how you can't tell what's going to happen next. I love that he's just like, let's have a fucking lion. And you're like, great, lion. Cool. <laughs> Whatever. Like, you know, and it's like this thing where like nothing can shock you. I mean, it does shock you, but you're just like, oh, okay, like it's not out of place. Like it could be anything. Like he could do anything and it's all everything's game. So I think it's a really fun sequence because it feels like four tiny short movies kind of all together in a different way and you get to learn a little bit about el topo and his weaknesses as well in the sequence i think that helps with the pacing of the movie a little bit too you know the fact that it's broken into these segments it makes it a much easier watch even if some of the material is difficult you had something to say there Liam? well i think it's worth mentioning he he goes out of his way i think in the film itself but also in the commentary to make sure you know kind of where he's drawing from with each of these masters but i think right. it's really important it, when people are reacting to the film is is um what isn't happening is that el topo is conquering other religious groups you know what i mean like there's a sure. way to see it where uh if this was a kung fu movie the point would be our central character has better kung fu than all these other masters right but i think because it's trickery the, the flaw or the, the thing that he's he's sort of uh, learning about is himself. It's not that, uh, you know, the Taoist or the native or the Sufi, that these these perspectives or identities or cultures are bad, per se. Right. I think that's um, really important. You're absolutely right, because one of the things, when he finally gets into a meditative state, it's really about gaining an appreciation and a love for it, because we know Jodorowsky is a dedicated student of a lot of these faiths. And in a sense, he's kind of combined them all. Like, like mm-hmm. you all, like he's learned something from each of them at that final moment. But it's not, I think, in defeating them that he learns it. It's in feeling the emptiness, and then the emptiness is where he has learned to combine all these things from these masters. You know, Julia, sticking with you, do you have a favorite of the uh, encounters with the masters? Hmm. I really like the first one. I think, you know, you have the, you know, you not only have this incredibly beautiful blind man who, you know, who just seems live, live there waiting for people to come seek out his, his thing. But then you also have this combination of his servants, who is a legless man and an armless man working together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really think that's kind of beautiful that they found each other and you, you know, and that when they do, uh, Mara does a shooting them, um, that they, he puts them together, you know, so they can be together in death as well. And that's very sweet. Absolutely. Sad, I, uh, but sweet. <laughs> sad but sweet. Absolutely. One of the things talked about in the El Topo book is 
what the meaning of the white horse that the first master rides on when he is shot and killed we see a, a brief instance of him you know riding a white horse looking very free looking very happy uh, and Jodorowsky then goes into a long <laughs> diatribe I would say about what the white horse is meant to represent and I'll tell you reading that I was I felt so lost and felt like how could I possibly understand this movie when I can't even understand a horse? But I think it's important when uh, watching all of Jodorowsky's movies to understand that you're never going to, you're never going to interpret things like Jodorowsky interpreted them. At least not to the grand extent that he did. You can take bits and pieces, but you have to find your own comprehension in it. And I think that that's that should be felt. That should feel freeing as opposed to frustrating though i know some people watch movies like this and find it to be very frustrating liam did you have a favorite encounter with the master i think i i we i know this is weird but i, I kind of have two answers to this only in that uh the final one i think is my favorite because mm -hmm. i i love that interaction with that final master and and the kind of futility of it all but I love I love his I love his butterfly net. <laughs> his, but bullet, that, his boomerang butterfly net. Yeah, yeah that, right. but but even that idea, right? That, that you know, I'm just a naked man, a near naked man with a butterfly net. What are you gonna do? It, it, it's yeah. such a mockery of power, whatever. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the actual design, Master Number Two is my favorite with the mom and the lion and the look of it all. And whereas with the other masters, I was kind of guessing what they might mean before I watched the commentary. And he said, as soon as I saw that second master, I'm like, oh, we're in Persia with like Sufis, yeah, right? right? right. It mm -hmm. like immediate click. I knew what part of the world this guy was supposed to be from. And it was like, cool. I just feel like he really nailed that imagery you know even the even the moment where he's crossing the river all that stuff but when it comes to the actual events of the scene that last one is at just that even that final destroy in a way destroying who el topo is just being like well, i'll just kill myself and that's yeah. it and then we're done <laughs> we're done here yeah he says you lost yeah you've lost bye and then that, that just yeah, i don't know something about that's just so amazing you know I also like that transition when it comes to the masters that that each one has less than the one before them. Like the first has this tower, the second has this kind of tent series of tents, the third is basically just has this this um, rabbit area that he's living in, and the fourth has nothing at all. That it's just even his fear of death has been removed at the uh, at the end of it. So, like you said, killing him would be an empty gesture. So he's just to show you how empty it would be, he kills himself. It's odd. You've mentioned two. Uh, Julia mentioned one. My favorite is actually the third master who has this kind of rabbit den that he's keeping. Now, I mentioned already that the animal death in this movie uh, bothers me, and this sequence is rife with it. You see many dead rabbits in it, but there is something in this particular sequence that I feel is very haunting. And I think w one of the things I most enjoy is his first encounter sitting with this this master and then playing music together. And yeah, within I like that the playing. Too. Within the playing of that music, he says that he knows everything about him just from the way that he plays. I guess uh, this was uh, something that uh, Jodorowsky took from Confucius. At least that's what he says. But uh, you could see how someone like John Lennon or any of the many musicians who have been influenced by El Topo since, whether it be Peter Gabriel, whether it be Kanye West, that they could take something from that as well. That it's the most explicitly musical part of the movie and the idea that music can be part of that transcendence that the movie is, uh, is kind of talking about. But I do... Again, like I said, I, I find each one of them unique and interesting. And uh, what Julia was mentioning, that you just don't know what you might see. Uh, it just makes the, I wouldn't say necessarily a joy 
of uh, encountering all of these different masters, but they're all so different that it, uh, it, it really does kind of keep you compelled to watch. Now this uh, segment, um, in between each encounter with the master, we get to see more of El Topo's relationship with Mara. She, she's pushing him to encounter these masters. Again, she, she is refusing her love until he defeats them. But we also get uh, to know more about this woman in black. She carries a whip. She sometimes assists uh, in some ways in the background. She, we, we're hard, it, at first it's hard to tell whether she's supposed to be literally there or not. But uh, at one point, her and Mara, you know, they embrace. There's obviously some sort of relationship between them. Uh, sticking with you, Liam, what do you think of this woman in black, this this often topless woman? What is she supposed to represent? Again, as I mentioned before, she speaks with a, a male voice in the film. I mean, honestly, uh, it is one of the enigmas for me, even with him explaining it and... Uh, in the interview, Brontus explains it uh, as sort of El Topo's, you know, female doppelganger, his female right. side embodied in the film itself. I don't understand that. I, I you know, I think that um, for I, I don't think it's meant in an essentialist way, but in a lot of uh, Jodorowsky's conceptions of things, there are feminine and masculine aspects and and i think at at this point he's in one place of how he thinks about that he eventually grows to have different ideas about it but for him there is always these things that are feminine and masculine and i don't think that affirms let's call biological essentialism but it does sort of mean that when we speak of genders we have ideas of what that could mean and for him now he he sees us all of as having masculine and feminine in, our, in right. who we are, but that those are still things. Uh, and this is a weird thing for me to say as a cishet man, but as a cishet man, I've never understood anything about uh, gender identity, particularly or in the abstract. I don't right. get what's supposed mm -hmm. to be masculine. Things that are masculine are just dumb things to me. That you know what I mean. Things that are particularly feminine, they all feel culturally specific and not essential and i don't i've never understood the form and, and when i say this people might be put it back but i mean this very literally as someone who studied theology there's a lot of theology that believes in a feminine and masculine written into the universe that they mean in all kinds of different ways and i don't know what the fuck that is supposed to mean it sounds yeah. of all of the stuff going on here and i and i read the section you talked about doug with the horse and it is confusing but the idea that this is his feminine and the way that that is working in the world and it's working with him and against him at the same time. And and in fact, this woman he loves is seduced by his feminine aspect. I don't fucking know. It's like one of the things there. Obviously, lots of things in this movie are confusing or befuddling or interesting, however you want to conceive of it. But it's one of the few things that is confusing enough that I go, I don't get it. There are other things that I couldn't explain it to you, but I find them moving. And so, like, I don't know what this is literally supposed to mean, but it's very compelling, and it makes me think about A, B, and C. Everything that happens with this woman in black, I don't get it. The only part that really resonated with me was when she gives him the stigmata with her gun, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I was like, okay, I, I kind of get where he's going with this, because <laughs> he's about to sort of go into hell or whatever, and die for a bit or whatever it is. Um, but as far as how she functions in those scenes in the desert that feel very interpretive and relational, I don't get it. I don't have an interpretation. I don't have an inkling even of what any of that is supposed to mean. My understanding is that as originally conceived, there was a sequence in this movie where those characters, where Mara and the woman in black, would be murdered violently. 
and that Jodorowsky chose to remove that from the film. And I think that that was a very wise decision because if you murder them, if you if you kill them in that violent way, you put a judgment on what they do. But right. when you watch the movie as it is now, the fact that they turn on him and kill him, he kind of deserves it, right? Because of what we've seen. Maybe deserves got nothing to do with it, to take a line from another Western. But the the idea is that we are, we're not necessarily meant to judge these two female characters because of what they've done. That at that point in time, he can't transcend unless they do that to him. That it's kind of um, that it's kind of already predicted. Like it's already something that has to happen. But the other thing is, and this is something Jodorowsky has mentioned in multiple interviews, is what you were referring to, Liam. The idea that we do live in a patriarchal society, and that it's important mm-hmm. for uh, for men to embrace their femininity, um, and that there has to be some sort of balance. And I think that might be the key to The Woman in Black is that idea of balance. El Topo has no balance. He has leaned None. heavily into the masculine side of himself in, so to such an extent that he's basically split in half and that he can't find true love. He can't find a real relationship with Mara unless unless it the, the split part of him is able to do that, the full femininity. Though, again, we're, we're digging deep into interpretation here. Uh, Julia, your thoughts on The Woman in Black? So I I had never thought of her as being his female counterpart. I just kind of assumed she was this outsider character. And I liked that. So, you know, how I always thought about her was that somebody that she was kind of riding on El Topo's coattails and Mm. using him Mm. to best these Mm. masters for her. Because when, you know, they first meet when she's at the first, the blind master, and they say the blind master won't see her, that she's been waiting and he won't see her, but he sees El Topo right away. And then she's like, oh, I can show you to the second master. And so I feel like she kind of outsmarts him this whole movie and just uses him to do this work for her. And then once it's all done and the masters are all bested, then she's like, great. And now I'm going to take a girl and see you later. Like that was the plan all along. So I think she's like, she's, she had it figured out from like the beginning. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a very valid interpretation, especially because she doesn't seem to have any of the doubts that he seems to have. And he doesn't, or even the struggle, or even the fact Mm. that Mara is the one pushing El Topo to do this. Her motivations seem to be entirely her own. Um, It it is, and and she is also kind of more overtly sexual. There's that part where she has the piece of fruit that she (laughs) manipulates in a very sexual way, let's say. Uh, There's no mistaking what that's supposed to say. But at first, Mara is disgusted by it. But eventually, she I think she is entranced and aroused by it. And that's something that we see in the film as well. Uh, Liam, you mentioned that the stigmata wounds that uh, are created on El Topo, that uh, at that moment, there is no doubt that he is meant to be a Christ-like figure. You You mentioned that the idea that his fall at that point, if I guess that's the best way to put it, that whether he is going through a kind of hell, whether he's going through some sort of trial, what, what, what would be your kind of overtly religious interpretation of what happens to him there? Because in the movie, what we see is him being sort of rescued by this village of people with various disabilities. Well, I think um, it is his final sort of death is uh is sort of transfigured i you know he doesn't die obviously but you know in or a does sense, he <laughs> well and that's that's what's sort of you know uh it, it's very telling in the commentary it was a throwaway comment but we cut to him in this cave and yodorowsky says yeah you know it's been 10 years it's been 100 years whatever <laughs> right and and that that that's sort of the idea that he has descended into something and then is awoken to this new world where his character is entirely motivated by the other, 
by the encounter with the other, by the need to serve others, to care about others. Um, uh, and, and I think that that is, in this scene, um, he's dying to the world to become something else, which then problematizes the ending a little bit, but maybe it doesn't. I don't know. We can talk. We'll talk about that when we get there. But my sort of interpretation of it is it is meant to – um, in some sense, represent a, a sacrifice, but it's the sacrifice to, in a sense, his own ego. You know that that this whole journey, even though he's been pushed by Mara, right? The reason that Mara can push him is because, like everyone obsessed with the self, he um, he's insecure. He has to prove mm-hmm. something. You know that that if he was fully himself and fully relational to other people, then he wouldn't have felt like he had to basically become the colonel you know that he didn't have to be this sort of cruel master mastering these other people and whatever whatever um uh, on the other hand i don't know the 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 sort of idea of him then he's with this community of uh of people who look different and there's no sensitive word to you you know it's something i'm already struggling with absolutely even even the word disability isn't is a is, is not an appropriate word Right. But basically, he wants in the, you know, his words he refers to them are horrifying. But for him, again, it's worth remembering that everything is about turning everything on its side. Everything is about turning things over. So he sees these people as beautiful, as evidence of biological diversity and the beauty of that. And he rightly points out in the commentary that historically there have been plenty of cultures that honored these people for their differences, that this actually made them more holy and set apart and all that kind of stuff. So in his descent into this community, yes, he's entered the social world, the world of relating to other people, but he's also among people who in themselves are holy because they are different, even if they are also oppressed by this outside world. Julia, any thoughts on El Topo as a Christ-like figure before we start talking about the third section, maybe the most controversial section of the film? Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, this this gap you have between, um, you know, when he dies and when he wakes up is is so intriguing to me because I just, mm-hmm. you know, we don't learn what, what happened exactly. Obviously, they found him. They brought him to this cave. Um, his his girl says that she he's been there since before she was born and she looks mm-hmm. like she's in her twenties thirties right so she's right. he's been there for a while, and so you know obviously he was was he did he actually die or was he and they brought him back or has he just been sitting in this kind of trance like state like why did he not just die what what was it that brought him to a state where he could be alive that time and just kind of this dormant thing but also kind of you know, his hair goes white as, as right. you know, he, he becomes this other thing. But I think I love that in doing that, he finds joy and love. And I yeah. think that that's, yeah. you know, and that's like, you never see El Topo smile. Like he's got no sense of humor, you know, but you bring him up back and then like now he's this clown and he finds that making people laugh is something that brings joy to himself and others. And I think that's really beautiful. I'm like you, Julia, in that this final section is the part of the movie that. I don't necessarily enjoy as much. Maybe that's the wrong word, but that's the one I'm going to use. But it's also, I think, the most essential part of the movie because of that transcendence, because of that change, because of his physical and spiritual transformation. And um, you never in a normal Western get this change. No, right? absolutely. You know, that's 100%. Man in Black just stays the man in black. That's all you got. And especially because 
at the in the second section of the movie where he's going after the four masters, it's taking place in the desert, but it's lost a lot of the trappings of the Western in terms of the visuals. Well, in the third part, we go back to, we're now in a Western town, right? Uh, even though, again, it, it's it's a Jodorowsky-style Western town with all of the uh, surreality that you would expect out of that. Let's jump into part three, uh, the final section of El Topo. It begins, as we mentioned already, with El Topo awakening in an underground cavern filled with these uh, people with various differences who, who at that point are worshiping him as a god. And hey, why not? Earlier in the film, he said he was a god. He awakens... Um, he and he discovers that all of these people have been trapped in this cavern. They've basically been trapped by the people in the town nearby um, who who have, have trapped them specifically because of their various uh, disabilities, if that's what you'd want to say, um, and uh, that are the result of inbreeding. So he encounters, a, I guess, a mystic, you might say, a, one of the women who have kind of a, a, a spiritual sensibility within this cave. He sucks on a psychedelic beetle undergoes a, a symbolic and almost a literal rebirth that we see on screen. And he says that he is going to dig a tunnel out of the mountain so all the people can escape. He falls in love at the same time with uh, the the dwarf woman, the little person woman who uh, first kind of awakens him from his um, his um, state of, of catatonia. By kissing him. By kissing him, yeah. And, and honestly, that relationship is one of the most kind of sincere and mm -hmm. real that we see in really any of Jodorowsky's works that I've encountered, but in particular in this movie, it's rare. It's rare to see two people who sincerely, legitimately care for each other and act that way. Um, eventually, the uh, this this um, this path in the the mountain will will uh, be opened and the people will come out. They'll be actually massacred by the people in the city. But among all of this as well, Hio. Uh, El Topo's son also enters the picture and discovers that his father is uh, still alive and actually uh, devotes his himself to actually murdering his dad. But before doing that, he's going to help him uh, dig this tunnel as well. The film ends with, well, we'll talk about the ending of the film in just a little bit. First, once again, I want to talk about our general interpretations. Julia, I'm going to start with you. As you said, this isn't your favorite part of the movie. Why is that? And uh, But what are some of the things that you do like about this section? I guess the you know the first time I saw it, I was just shocked by it that the film sure. takes this mm -hmm. super sharp turn and I'm like oh it's a whole different movie now and I was just not prepared for it so I guess it just kind of threw me off. Um, I really do like the relationship with him and the girl a lot. I think it's very sweet and I think that you know it's on you know he just and then I also love the 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 silliness you get from him mm -hmm. that you know and that's something that you know we we had seen in uh La Cravate and his early work you know his mime skills which are stupendous we get to see some of that and his you know, but you also get this horrible horrible town that's going to take them and kind of break them down and break the you know make them have sex in front of them while they laugh and like this kind of taking everything that's beautiful about relationship and making it terrible um and you have you know i think you do feel this sense of purity in this re way reawakened el topo that he just he seems quite childlike and that you know he he likes to laugh and he likes to you know but he's also trying to care for her and he's also trying to care for all of these other people um maybe like lowering a rope might have been a better idea yeah. than, like, <laughs> i know it's metaphorical everything's metaphorical but just saying 
<laughs> you might have been able to control the flow a little bit better that way as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's also, I think, you know, this is also a cool segment because I, I, you know, I really like that his son comes back and, you know, the words that he leaves him with as he abandons him is destroy me. So he's just kind of doing what his dad wanted him to do. And I'm sure he's lived with this regret all this time, but he also comes back in the same outfit, right? So right. he's become mm -hmm. his dad as well. So yeah, much, so many dad issues. So many dad issues. <laughs> uh, one of the things I like about this segment too is that it feels somewhat uh, more overtly a commentary on entertainment. That you have that after El Topo and his uh, and I guess his his girlfriend, wife, his partner, uh, they go in and, and start begging basically for change. But in the process, they develop this routine, this mime based routine in which they entertain the town and the, then the town gives them money for it. But eventually they are supplanted by this kind of violent entertainment where people are boxing with barbed wire gloves and things like that. People aren't going to care about mime anymore because they've got something a lot more kind of uh, violent and, and action oriented. Uh, I mean, you can interpret that probably it's the most easily interpretable <laughs> moment in the entire movie movie uh and uh, and and maybe there's an element of hypocrisy considering the the violence that we have on screen in this film as well but uh i really do like that element of it but but i want to go back to something you said julia which is you get to see jodorowsky you get to see el topo smiling you get to see him goofing around playing doing this mime what a performance this is where you have you know you have clint eastwood and then you have jodorowsky in this other completely different form it's the same character you can still connect them all together but it's it feels so different uh it, i mentioned at the beginning that jodorowsky never meant for him to to be this role but it, it really is hard to think of anybody else playing it by the time you get to the end of this film i feel uh, like if he, if he had cast somebody else he would have fired him a couple weeks in and be like no no no, i'm just gonna do it myself yeah i agree yeah. <laughs> liam your thoughts on uh, on part three of el topo um i i agree with you guys that it is on a certain level less satisfying it's the only part of the movie that i start to think like how long is this movie? You know, like the rest of the movie, I'm pretty compelled. And this last part gets, a, it's not as immediately sort of moving in some ways. However, I also find the, again, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's satire, but some of what's going on here feels more immediately relatable to me. A whole community devoted to a false religion that uses the, the pyramid and I that we, that I, and I think a lot of people associate with the Masons and Illuminati and American money. Like this all feels even in the sense that there are these very proper women who are, you know, uh, evaluating the town, um, and evaluating the decency of the town while they themselves have slaves uh, that they um, sexualize and abuse and murder for everyone's enjoyment um, while the men have a secret brothel. So they're they're giving in to all these ideas around purity and this uh, kind of false religion that they have. Uh, but it underneath is all immorality that it's all pretend and that really they're isn't that, about isn't that real life though is yeah that real life? What, no exactly and that's i think i think that's been yodorowsky's insight from the beginning is this idea that like it, it, you know I, I, it's very telling when uh the the cult of the gun is disillusioned when when things turn out the way that one would expect and his son is tearing away all these eyes and then revealed as this cross, you know, but of course it's a black and white cross, you know, sort of making us think of like yin and yin and yang, you know? So, um, but, uh, anyways, 
so as much as this part is like less exciting for me and then leads to an ending which is kind of difficult in in some ways um i find some of what's going on here what's being represented here a little bit more relatable and a little bit more political which uh, you know in, in some ways I, I i not that he's not political uh, and and I think a lot of his movies have politics in them, but a lot of this film feels more about a personal journey, you sure, know? absolutely. And so to suddenly be like, oh, there's a bunch of oppressed people who then when they finally get to the place that they've idolized, the city or possibly the United States, they're simply uh, murdered. <laughs> I, you know, that's I, maybe that's not supposed to be a direct correlation, but as a viewer, was that what I was connecting in my head? Yes, 100 fucking percent. And so having that for me, because that's where my mind is usually, was very satisfying, even if parts of this... Uh, of this part of the film were less immediately satisfying. I mean, it's certainly something that I took from that. Uh, I, I does it cross my mind at all? Not something that I thought about at all. I just kind of take it in the face value of this Jodorowsky world and didn't really like think of it in the broad terms of real life uh, and United States or anything like that. And I'm actually going with what you said, Julie. I don't think that Jodorowsky meant for it. I mean, certainly when he speaks of the U.S. at this time period, he speaks of it in glowing term sure and being yeah. very accepting it just but it is something that in retrospect yeah liam when they when that door opens and the people flood into town with the smiles on their faces and immediately get murdered it is something that certainly in the face of of the last however many years it's something that that echoes in history a little bit julia one thing i wanted to ask you about is the town itself now liam referred to the fact that the people in it they're just awful. <laughs> they're, they're all sorts of hypocrites. There's uh, a lot of kind of uh, visual suggestion of, as you said, Liam, slavery. Uh, even if it's not overtly said, we actually see a black man who is hung up and murdered. Uh, it, obviously, there are interpretations that are very clear there. Um, what do you think we're supposed to take away from the actions of this terrible town? I guess it's just, you know, <clears throat> I guess it's just Otopo waking up to horrors mm. you know that he he was causing horrors in the first half and now he's seeing kind of the results of violence and what that does to people in the second half and how it perverts people and it becomes like once you have some you can't get enough and it has to be bigger and bigger and bigger um and this kind of feeling of him being completely disconnected um and you know having this kind of pure idea of what love can be and what art can be and that it doesn't have to be perverted in this way um mm. so i think that that's a really interesting thing about it and i just like to see him you know we have him with these women in the in the first half that are very that are not good matches for him we'll say that they yes they, you know and then then you have you know you find someone who is a wonderful match for him and then you know because we never have any idea of who uh you know brontus is uh Hiho's mother is where is she why does he have him that's right. you know mm -hmm. we don't know anything about her so then you have you know when his girlfriend uh, becomes pregnant, then it's something like he's really, you can tell he's very sweet and he's very excited for this, you know, this baby that's going to come. And so you have this transformation of him to become, looks like, it looks like he's going to be excited to be a father until things go terribly wrong. Um, yes. Yes. So that's kind of a, a nice, you know, humanizing where he becomes more developed as a character and, and has more dimensions than just this kind of mysterious gunslinger. There's this kind of introduction of this element of love, which becomes incredibly important and even comes becomes important regarding his relationship with his son once he returns into the picture. Right. That it seems like as his son 
at first, like you said, he's going to destroy his father. It's all he cares about. He starts dressing like him. He becomes this kind of vengeful figure that his father was in the first two segments of the movie. But as they spend time together, as they perform together, right, as they act together, that there's this kind of connection that develops between them that that softens them, right? And again, it's hard not to see that as somewhat autobiographical as well, uh, even if the actor now playing his son is not actually his son anymore. But uh, it, it, when we talk about the sons of El... Uh, of El Topo. Maybe we'll uh, refer to that once again. Uh, Liam, your thoughts? Uh, you mentioned that there's a section where uh, the town, in this really brutal segment, they take these two figures, they have El Topo and his partner, and make them make love in front of them while they're pointing and laughing. And at first, it's this very perverse and terrible thing, but it it there's, it kind of evolves into this kind of beautiful moment where they try to forget anyone else is around them he even says that to just pretend that it's just that's the she, two of us she, she, she says she, that that's right she says that it's actually very important she says that forget that anyone else is watching and it's this it, honestly it's an incredible moment where they are able to have this beautiful act amongst this perversity which i think sort of becomes symbolic of this larger uh the larger section that we're watching here where there's kind of a purity within them that this entire town is trying to pervert. Is that how you see it? How do you interpret the, the, the kind of awful uh, actions of the people in the town? This might seem weird, but it actually reminds me of him with the third master. Right. When he talks about perfection, the, you know, too much perfection or whatever. Um, one of the feelings I get from, from Jodorowsky is that, um, you, it is possible for there to be transcendence and love and connection and, and holiness in the midst of the most awful sort of perversions or right. mm-hmm. selling out or, or whatever it is that that corruption is meant to be. Um, on one hand, it's it's it is meant to show us that uh, this version of El Topo is also reaching the bottom of the barrel reaching his low point. You know, we sure. already see that when he's forced to clean the latrines of these awful sheriffs, you know? Um, but even more so this moment where the, even his relationship is, is instrumentalized for the entertainment of these people. And yet the transcendence is, is that they connect and they have a moment and their la- the laughter of the people watching doesn't, matter in a way you know it doesn't matter for their connection it's i think it's meant to be a a holy moment it's meant to be a a moment of transcendence and and to me it really is and i think that that is um you know there's a lot of different strains of identifying you know what it is that people mean by holiness or divinity or whatever um for for a lot of traditions it's a pure separation it's an idea of clean hands you know but i think in a lot of other traditions, it's not that at all. It's this idea that even within the most uh, debased scenario, one can still find transcendence. And then to have that be between two people is this continuing idea of um, El Topo looking out onto the world and that being what is motivating him to uh, to move and to act and to find enlightenment is is a concern for the social for the other i also find that el topo seems blinded to the reality of what would happen if these people within the mountain were let into this town because he really thinks he's doing something good exactly if he does something good that everybody will benefit 
And and she she seems to recognize it almost right away as she spends more time in the town. She's like, maybe it's better if we stay in the mountain. And he can, he won't even hear it. But obviously, when these two groups meet, the 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 result is not going to be positive. And even if he was able to control how fast they rush out, which should not have been a surprise, they've been in there for a while. That that it, he, he it was hard to picture what he thought was going to happen with these exceedingly violent and unpleasant group of people um once they should have given the speech first and like yeah trying to like lay the law tell everybody what's going to happen how do we feel about this no yeah well i mean i guess it's about there's an element of trying to control nature and human nature and just that inability to it but i'm glad that you brought up liam the idea of kind of finding transcendence and beauty within uh, situations where it seems completely non-existent uh and probably i that that that's something that in the tumultuous time when this movie came out, a lot of people were probably looking for those moments of solace and beauty and transcendence. Another thing that people, I think even now, people are probably taking away from this. Uh, since I've already referred to it, let's talk about it. The ending of this movie, uh, it's intense. Uh, the, it, it seems that as they're working their way through the mountain, they're, they're, they're mining this tunnel that it's never going to be complete. Um, Hio, El Topo's son, he's there. He's getting so frustrated. He basically gets to the point where he's like, look, when this is done, I'm supposed to kill you. It's never going to be done. Let me just go ahead and kill you. And just as he says that, they break the last barrier and open it up. And as we suggested, these the people that are inside this mountain, they they flow out and they almost like they knock over these characters as they head into the city. They all come in through the main city square. It seems like the people in the town are already ready for them. They already have their weapons drawn. They murder every single one of them. El Topo himself comes down. He screams. He then takes a gun and takes revenge and kills every single person in the town single-handedly before dousing himself with gasoline or some other flammable liquid and, and self-immolating uh, in, in, in a vision that probably would have been very familiar to people in 1970, just like the, um, the, the Buddhist monks who were uh, killing themselves as um, uh, protest against the Vietnam War. What is your, I know I'm just asking for interpretations here, but to me, this is, might be the most important thing to ask uh, about what uh, what your interpretation is of. Uh, sticking with you, Liam, how are we supposed to read this? I know that we already suggested that there's, from a modern perspective, there's a lot we can take away from it. But from, from what you know of Jodorowsky, how do you think he saw this ending? I mean, that's a big question, Doug. That's a, that's a huge question. But I bet he does speak about it in some of these interviews as well. Yeah, I mean, my inclination is that um, there's something about the the if the act itself was completely successful, right? Then the result would be the thing that kind of justifies what he's been doing, right? But in failing and yet still having the the honey show up at the end, right? We get so speak, just just uh, go into a little more detail on that. Oh, after he immolates himself, he's buried. I assume by uh, Hiho and uh, and uh, uh, the his his, his I, partner. Is, his, yeah, his, his partner. wife. They get married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His wife. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then the last shot, we see the grave that they make for him again, and it is covered in honey, um, and, and and honey. Uh, for Yorowski represents something holy, something sacred, like life. And so it, in a sense, it's like a postscript. It's like an affirmation of, of who he is and, and what he did was 
not without meaning, even though the result is horrifying. Um, and, and, and so my, my, my thought, and again, this is not a full, some of the, some of my interpretations I feel pretty strong about, like, okay, I think that makes sense. This is a total guess, but it feels like for Jodorowsky, it can't be that this effort is, was a good effort because it fixed the world. That's not the point. The point is that he finally did something for these other people. And while it didn't go the way he wanted it to go, um, and we could argue that there were strategic things he could have changed to make it go better, but it didn't go the way that it, it should have. He still did something to change the reality of other people, and that effort matters in and of itself. Um, my inclination is to say it's 1970. You know, I don't know how confident 1970 Jodorowsky is in the various revolutionary movements going around him. Like I think being a part of the surrealist tradition, you know, he's well aware that the world needs to be different. Uh, and he definitely sees spirituality as a way for the world to be different. But I don't think he is like, and we're going to get there guys. Like it's going to happen. Yeah, like it's, yeah, it's yeah. going to be a thing. This is like, one failure in the history of failures of people trying to make and and it's i think it's not again i don't want to bring up the commentary too much but one of the things he suggests in the commentary is he's not just saving the people in the mountain he's saving the city too that that in in this encounter there's an opportunity for the people in the city to be better which of course they're not going to do you know whatever but so all that to say i think there is this idea and 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 I to me and in my study I don't want to like paint with a broad brush, but this feels very Buddhist to me. This idea that it's not about this end result, but the effort in and of itself that matters. Um, it, it it feels very much like the Buddhist uh, uh, mysticism I have have read that is about these efforts that aren't about um, showing the change that you were able to make. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a very pessimistic view, but I think it's a rightfully pessimistic one. There is some optimism that we are left with at the end where uh, El Topo's son rides away with yeah. his wife and her her new child. Um, and it, that leaves open the possibility of, I guess, some sort of continuation of what he was trying to bring to the world. But I think, I think, yeah, I think a lot of it would be difficult not to interpret a lot of the more violent elements of this final act as being representative of a pessimistic view of the world, and in 1970 and in 2021, it's uh, it's easy to uh, to give in a little bit to that pessimism. Julia, do you see it the same way? What's your interpretation of the final act of El Topo? Well, I think you know it's interesting because you have Hijo who you know he's going to kill him, and then you know he says, "I cannot kill my master," right? And mm -hmm. I think you yeah. have this arc for him as well, where if he really hated his father as much as he says he does, he would just kill his wife, right? Kill the baby, like he right. like, the revenge would continue, but he doesn't. And he like in fact goes off. He's going to help them now, and I think that that's a very interesting transformation for him. As far as El Topo's ending himself, I see it as. You know, he really thought he was helping the people in the mountain. He really thought that this was going to be something that was going to, he all, you know, because he works in this tunnel forever, right? And like, mm -hmm. this is something he's been doing for so long and he's put all of his life into it. And now everything is going to be awesome for these people. And these are the people who saved him as well. Right. And then he, you know, he gets down to the town and they're killed. And I think, you know, you have that moment and then you have the moment right after where he just decides to murder everybody else, you know, yeah, so it's yeah. like he's angry at them for murdering these people. And then in revenge, he's going to murder them. So I think that's what 
brings him to kill himself is like not only like he failed in, in bringing joy to these people, but he also just turned it around and did the exact same thing to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think those things on top of each other is what he's like, okay, you know, I thought I was going to be a good saint and I've just fucked everything up. I'm taking myself out of the equation and things will be better without me. I mean, I think that's, that's a, 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 an extremely valid uh, way to interpret the end of, mm. of the movie. Uh, the, it's interesting for us to be talking about the end of the movie because all three of us have read a continuation of the story, right, right. Uh, which which continues right as this movie ends. So it kind of feels like the story. Hit two kind of way, sure. <laughs> yeah. off where it left off, you know. <laughs> it, it 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 so it feels like kind of having watched it now that the story isn't finished because it isn't. However, El Topo, as we see him in this film, his story is finished at this time. Uh, so that is El Topo. From the year 1970. Uh, uh, <laughs> look, when we started this Jodorowsky podcast, we knew El Topo was coming right at the beginning. I hope that we did the film justice. The fact is, there has been so much written and said uh, by Jodorowsky himself, by uh, critics, by people interpreting the content, by fans of it, that it would be impossible to cover everything. I'm glad that we have uh, focused a little more on our own personal interpretations. And one of the things that I think we've come away with is, is the movie's interpretation or our interpretation of it can change as time changes. And I think that is reflective of a lot of brilliant pieces of art. And that is what I would categorize as El Topo as. It's challenging, it's difficult, sometimes it's thoroughly unpleasant, but it, it is in that category of not just great films, but great pieces of art in general. Uh, that is my kind of final takeaway of El Topo. And I wanna get your final thoughts as well, uh, starting with you, Julia. Any final thoughts on El Topo? If you haven't watched it, you should watch it because yes. it's the, the, as the film, the trailer says, it is an experience you will carry with you for all your life. And it's true. <laughs> it really is. It's a it's a brilliant film. And it really is astounding that it all came together to work as it is, because I think making a movie is hard work and making a movie with this specific of a vision and carrying it through from beginning to end is incredibly difficult. And he does it with such finesse and such, I want a film to feel like this person. And I feel like, I feel like this movie is Jodorowsky. Like I feel like I know who he is through this movie in a way. And I like that about it, but like everything about it feels like this one person. And that's what film can be is like, you know, I feel like even every character in this movie is him a little bit. And I really love that about it. So, you know, it's, this kind of love it or hate it thing that you watch this movie and it's like, do you like El Topo? Then keep watching Jodorowsky. If you don't, it's kind of the like pinnacle and like encapsulation <laughs> of who he is as a filmmaker. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's very distilled in terms of Jodorowsky. There are, are a lot of imitators, but uh, there's only one uh, real Alejandro Jodorowsky and his films are not like anybody else's. And El Topo is at this point in his career, uh, the the purest example of that. Liam O'Donnell, your final thoughts on El Topo before we talk about after El Topo. I, I think it's also worth saying for me that um, this is... Like each film, I think represents where he's at, like what's going on in his life, sure. and what he's mm -hmm. thinking about, and so it. There are certain concerns that people might have watching this movie that I think are sort of where he's at at this time. That I think, um, sort of change for him over time, uh, which isn't to say that the films get easier to watch. Uh, <laughs> if 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 you find this movie a struggle, then I don't know you're going to jive with Holy Mountain per se. However, I do think like he's growing as a person as he makes these movies. Uh, and I think um, 
one could even argue that you could watch the movies in the other direction and still have an interesting experience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, yeah, this is, I guess, y- you know this, Doug. I am someone who is deeply connected to uh, a religious community, whether I want to be or not, because I've married, <laughs> I've married a pastor. And so regardless of what I think of it, I will always be in relationship with the church because of that relationship. Um, and so I am okay with being related to something and also thinking that aspects of it are hard and difficult and uncomfortable. And honestly, I think that's everything. I think it's easy to describe uh, a holy text that way, that every holy text has the dark and the light in it as far as things that are really uplifting to the human spirit and then things that are horrifying to us that we wish <laughs> weren't written down. Um, but I think that's true of everything, that it, that there is a light and a dark to all of these things. And whether you mean that in a, in a metaphorical sort of touchy-feely spiritual sense or just literally like, you know, uh, we, you know, new life begins, uh, at birth and if you've ever watched a birth that's a difficult thing to watch you know what i mean like that's it's from moment one that we are in this situation that combines all of this stuff so for me uh that's sort of how i feel about this movie that like yeah there's probably stuff in it that any person is gonna there's gonna be some moment you you feel uncomfortable about um but i think it will be transcendent for most people. Maybe not everyone. There's definitely going to be some people who just can't jive with it, and that's mm-hmm. okay. But chances are, for a lot of people, you're going to be thinking about this movie for a long time afterwards. It's going to stick with you. And I think that's true of almost all of his movies, really. You're just going to keep thinking about them, and they're going to mean something to you. I think Jodorowsky, in all of his ego and all of his uniqueness, would love that someone referred to his film as a holy text because I think that's probably how he sees it as well. And I think it's yeah. a very valid way to describe it. Um, that, that as he suggested, like everything that he had read, everything he knew, whether it be about spirituality or just, just his knowledge generally, he tried to put it into his movie. Uh, anyone who argues against auteur theory probably has not seen a Jodorowsky film because this is purely his film. And yeah. And we'll see that in in a number of his other works as we move forward. Uh, Upon the release of El Topo, it wasn't just a Midnight Madness success in New York. It became a film that that found success throughout the world and was very influential on a number of very famous artists, including, uh, at the time, uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. We already mentioned, of course, John Lennon, but George Harrison became a fan as well. David Lynch, Nicholas Winding Refn, Samuel Fuller. Lots of musicians, as we mentioned, uh, there's a kind of well-known photo of Kanye West who got his tarot uh, read by Jodorowsky. Oh, my God. I would die to have my tarot read by Jodorowsky. Right. It's it's worth mentioning, Doug, that some of this, too, led to Jodorowsky doing his own cuts of other people's movies. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. And we'll talk about that in the future as well. Uh, Peter Gabriel was so influenced that he used it as an influence on the Genesis album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It's just the influence, as I said before, it echoes throughout history. There's so much work that, uh, and not just this film, but Jodorowsky's entire oeuvre. It's interesting to think that uh, when I was reading up with interviews, I found some interviews from, say, a decade ago. And at that time, Jodorowsky was described in a lot of these interviews as a forgotten filmmaker as someone who, would, who who was influential to a lot of artists, but that the mainstream were not that aware of because at that time, people were not talking as much about El Topo or the Holy Mountain. And it, I feel like after the release of Jodorowsky's Dune, that it, it there was kind of a rebirth and a reinvigoration uh, of him in terms of 
his his kind of more mainstream work and his uh, ability to make movies, which has been a really exciting thing to think. It's still exciting to, to even the concept that Alejandro Jodorowsky is on social media at the age of what ninety two. He's in his nineties at this point, and and, he, and his new movies are killing it. They're brilliant. Yeah, exactly. He hasn't lost it at all. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's 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 been really kind of fun to trace his career since then. Now, I'm going to talk about something that we I feel like we have to talk about. It is kind of unpleasant, uh, but uh, and we've all talked about it personally. It's something that we talked about even before we started recording our first episode. It's something that I'm sure a lot of listeners are already aware of, but there is a controversy around El Topo, and I want to make sure that we take it seriously. Uh, in some of the interviews, immediately after the release of the movie, Jodorowsky claimed uh, quite enthusiastically that the sequence in the film that takes place in the desert between him and Mara, where he uh, rapes her in the desert before she's able to find food and is able to find water from the very phallic stone, that that was actually a real sexual assault that was captured on film. And it's, uh, it's a horrifying thing to say. It actually has affected uh, Jodorowsky's ability to have his films shown in recent years when people rediscovered these interviews. His reaction to it, I think, is something that is reflective of a lot of what we've been saying, that when it comes to him talking about his films at that time period, he says a lot of stuff that has later been shown to not be the case. And as the way he puts it, they were surrealist publicity. So he has categorically denied that this was the case. The woman herself has actually never come forward in any way, but that's not really a statement because no one really knows who she is. She wasn't an actress before, and there was no kind of relationship with the movie. To Jodorowsky's knowledge, she's never seen the film, but he did address in 2019 that uh, in regards to what he said about the rape, he says, they were words, not facts, surrealist publicity in order to enter the world of cinema from a position of obscurity. I acknowledge that this statement is problematic and that it presents a fictional violence against a woman as a tool for exposure, and now 50 years later, I regret that it is being read as truth. Um, I think it's important for us to at least, uh, not at least, it's important for us to bring it up simply because at this, the the publicity in 2019, the fact that this was uh, put out in a lot of news sources, uh, it, it especially at that particular time period, it colored how a lot of people viewed Jodorowsky and his work. And I think rightfully so. I mean, he did say these things. He said he did these things. However, I don't think any of us as the host of this show would be participating in this if we believed what he said in that earlier interview. And I will say that at, at this point, and I'm, I don't want to give the impression that we don't believe women. I don't want to give the impression that we take this lightly or any way. I take it incredibly seriously, but I also know that Alejandro Jodorowsky says a lot of things that are meant to shock, that are meant to uh, make people have a reaction, just like he shows things in his film films, he says things as well. And I think that this is just a particularly bad taste example of that. If ever any evidence came up to, to the contrary, and or even someone said to the contrary, uh, this was more than just Jodorowsky's words, and certainly it's something we'd have to reevaluate. But it is something I wanted to bring up. Uh, do, do either of you have anything to add to that? I think you pretty much succinctly said it. I wouldn't do it if I believed it was true. And I just think that it was another one of his, you know, unreliable narrator type uh, things. And I think it was a, he sees it now as the stupid thing to say that he should have seen it then. Um, and I'm glad that he realizes that at least. Uh, but yeah, I think it was just a made up. I don't think he was telling the truth. I th- yes, please, Liam. I think it's fine if people are still so offended that he would say that, that they're still concerned. I get that. I think... Um, it's just a reality in my mind of 
things that are designed to shock and to upset people that um, sometimes folks cross lines that they don't realize shouldn't be crossed because they're seeing it as, oh, this system is so uptight and so um, uh, held in that I'm sort of breaking expectations. So uh, for me and what I've studied, it's something I've had to struggle with when it comes to the writing of uh, the black nationalist tradition, that some of those writings leaned into a certain amount of misogyny because they saw it as a way to shock folks, to shock specifically oftentimes white people, but also um, to uh, to fight what they saw as a, as a demasculinization of who they were. Uh, I don't know if all those people would have taken that back given time. I think some folks who say shocking things for uh, ideological reasons, uh, they never learn any better. Uh, and the reality is uh, uh, Jodorowsky has lived a long life and he has lived long enough to say, I really regret that, <laughs> you know? And so I appreciate that as a lesson to people. Um, but I get that someone might say like, even if I don't believe he did that, I'm so just frustrated that that would be a way for him to promote something. It is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, uh, however, I get the mindset and I also get the narrative I'm given not just by him but by people around him and other things I've read which is that his relationship to women in general um, evolved over time right. and so um, he's definitely saying this at a time that he very much refers to as his chauvinism period a period where he specifically said you know he oftentimes blamed women for the ways that they were being oppressed by the patriarchy. He blamed them for it. And it, it was only over time he started to see this as like, oh, this is not you. This is actually part of a larger system that he was you know, not in, in, in touch with. And I'm sure that makes it easier to make claims like this uh, that now are embarrassing. So, you know, it, it, it's not okay, but I, I, I take comfort in the fact that he has at least realized that it was uh, the wrong thing to do at the time. I mean, one of the things that we see in the interviews that we've read is an evolution of character as well as an evolution of his uh, interpretation of his own work. So, yeah, like you said, like both of you have said, it's it, it there is something to the fact that he recognizes the power of his own words. And I, I think that people who were disgusted enough to be turned off by him as an artist entirely, I think that's a, a completely valid interpretation. I don't uh, I don't dismiss that. At all. I just wanted to bring it up. I think it's pretty important. Uh, after the release of El Topo, because it was this worldwide sensation, uh, there were attempts, as particularly since the 1990s, for Jodorowsky to make a sequel to it. You know, it's, it's funny to watch um, Jodorowsky's Dune. It seems like after uh, the, the late 80s, Jodorowsky just wasn't involved in making movies at all. That's not the case. He was just having trouble getting these movies made. He was trying to make the Sons of El Topo. In 1996, there was a teaser poster released. It's actually, uh, it's hard to find online, but I found a copy of it from an archived website. Uh, at that point, it was going to be produced by Alfonso Aro, the director of Like Water for Chocolate, as I mentioned before, who actually appears in the first section of El Topo. The, the title of that film was later changed to Abel Kane. At one point, Marilyn Manson was going to star in the sequel to El Topo. Thank God that never came to pass. Um, talk about things that haven't necessarily aged well that was in the early 2000s there are many articles that suggested that it was just about to be made even up to 2009 it seemed like the sons of el topo was just around the corner i hate to say it 
especially because Jodorowsky is still making films, I think at this point it's unlikely that we'll see a Sons of El Topo directed by Jodorowsky. But we are lucky that starting in 2016, the comic book adaptation of the Sons of El Topo uh, has started to be released. Uh, the two volumes of it have been released at, uh, at this point. We have read the two volumes of the Sons of El Topo uh, beautifully made book by the way just a, the art in it is is terrific uh it is very much in as you can imagine in the style of el topo but it also feels like the work of a somewhat more mature artist in a lot of ways so let's talk about it the sons of el topo available for now again two volumes it has not been completed at this point i do recommend if you have any interest in el topo which i imagine you do if you're listening up to this point that you check it out starting with you julia what are your thoughts on the sons of el topo Oh, I thought they were rad. I was really excited about them. Um, and I think that the, we were talking about, you know, he's been trying to make these movies forever. Nobody will give him money for it. But the, in the opening, his introduction, his, he, the thought he leaves you with is there is no such thing as failure, only new paths opening up. <laughs> so I really like that, that he's saying, okay, I might have failed all this time to make this happen, but look, I found a way to make it happen anyway. You know, and, and these movies, you know, are fantastical and huge and are very big set pieces. So of course they'd be very expensive to make, but if you're in a comic, then you can do whatever you like, right? It's not about that. Like you can make it as bright broad and grandiose as you want to so i think that the medium actually serves him well because he's able to have these huge big you know beautiful ideas but they still feel like jodorowsky to me like a lot of the background characters and stuff look like people who would be in his films um so you have the two volumes you have cain and abel and about his two sons that are the half brothers and the different paths they went on and i found them i just wanted more like i really wanted mm -hmm. and 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 that they they have he looks like his son aiden so hard and I was like, just, and I think this is, okay, so if we don't get The Sons of El Topo as a movie directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, have one of his sons do it, because yeah, how meta is that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems I bet like you would be... could fucking knock that out of the park. <laughs> uh, the art in the comic is by Jose Letron. I apologize if I'm... Um... Uh, if that's not how that name is said, but it is beautiful art. Uh, Jodorowsky himself said that until he met him, he wasn't sure that he could make it as a comic book, certainly since the passing of Mobius. We'll talk about, of course, a lot of Jodorowsky's comic art on a future episode of this podcast, but it was exciting for me to sit down and read a continuation of the El Topo story. And when I say continuation, hey, we've already suggested it. It, it, it starts right at the end of the film and we follow these two characters as they move out into the world and uh one of the things that isn't really made uh, established very well in the film that becomes an important part of the comic is the fact that uh Hio, the grown el Hio, um has a mark uh, of Cain on his forehead so people cannot look at him that they turn away from him wherever he goes and that becomes such an incredible visual element of the comic as it goes forward I do have to say that I did not realize that this comic was unfinished um, when I was reading it so when I got to the end of the second volume and found it was not the end I was both happy in the sense that boy I'm glad there's more to it and it's not going to be rushed to the end but also incredibly frustrated <laughs> at the idea that I did not get the complete story which I guess is a testament to the quality of the work within. Uh, it is, again, just like the film, very difficult at times. It's extremely violent. There's a lot of, of sexuality and sex and 
uh, once again, rape in this work, and you have to have an expectation that that buttons are going to be pushed when you're reading it. Um, and I, I read a few reviews of these comics, and there are a lot of people who didn't know what to make of it. Uh, and and I think it's only because that we've been delving so much into Jodorowsky's work lately, and because of this podcast as a whole, that uh, it felt like a cohesive voice and, and it felt like a cohesive vision of what Jodorowsky was continuing from the original El Topo. Liam, your thoughts on the Sons of El Topo? I think in it having more characters with more dialogue and more interaction, it actually felt um, more advanced than El Topo to me, which mm-hmm. is not a critique of the film, especially because for Jodorowsky, um, dialogue is what you do when you can't visually tell the audience what you want them to know. That's how cinema works. Uh, So I get that there's that difference there, but I think this medium allows him to tell a story that is still following a lot of the same themes and ideas of El Topo, but doing it in a much more complicated and nuanced way. Uh, However, even though it's not finished at the end of the second volume, we're already starting to see this transition where, People who seem to be awful are starting to become not that. And people who seem to be holy are revealing the cracks in who they are. And that, at its sort of core, that reversal of uh, of what your expectations are, seems to be Jodorowsky's, both his motivating aesthetic and his sort of uh, philosophy slash spiritual idea. This this idea that of... of things sort of turning on their head. And and that's what we get with his description of El Topo, right? This outlaw who opens his heart and becomes a holy man. He's kind of telling that story again, but with two characters and with these other elements. I think even though the way they are introduced and what they represent is very difficult to read, I think the inclusion of these two female characters as also part of this central group will end up surprising us because it will bring in a theme of the feminine that El Topo kind of lacks a little bit right. uh, because that's now an important part of how he sees the world. And yet, again, he's asking us to see all these things within the context of a lot of blood and violence and uh, sexuality. And and he is... Um, uh, bringing in things that we weren't expecting, you know, the inclusion of the, of this uh, Amish community, you know, at least visually Amish community in the book and the way that they act, um, you know, this, this uh, former seminarian read that as a very direct <laughs> criticism of Protestantism, and I didn't have much to say in return. I had to go, <laughs> well played, maestro, well played. Um, and I think there's a lot of this going on. I mean, when they get to the, you know, there's a very important scene. They've turned El Topo's grave into this holy site where there is these pillars of gold, but only the most sort of uh, simple, innocent, holy people can get across this bridge. And there's all these religious groups have gathered to see if this this bishop will get across and of course he doesn't you know yeah. you know from the moment you see this guy it's not going to work but uh but it's interesting how they he has expanded this religious imagery all over the place um into this comic whereas 
um, there might be viewers of El Topo who don't immediately get some of the spiritual connotations of the masters, you know, that maybe sure. mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you this book makes it clear, like every group has connotations of various identities and uh, religious belonging and all that kind of stuff. I All of that was very interesting. Even the people approaching the site chanting Hare Krishna was like, oh man, like he's really sort of amped that stuff up in this comic. And there's I found even, it. There's even visual KKK members out in oh yeah 100 percent. and and the the expansion of that world isn't at all for me a watering down of what el topo is it's such a like a faithful expansion and it deepens it so much that my worry is that there will be an end i wish he was younger and that this was going to be part of a running series for a few years Mm because that's how immediately sucked into this world i was granted i don't think the story would probably work over time it needs an ending but i was very much engaged by what was happening immediately i do also like that this is a medium that jodorowsky is very familiar with that he does not think of using comics as a way to tell the story as in any way a simplification or a inferior way of telling it that this is something that he has told stories using this medium for decades and decades so why not if he can't get this movie made well he has this in- incredible artist he has the story that he has you know if we if you've seen Jodorowsky's Dune he has a massive t- tome of of concept art and and ideas and scripts for this movie that he's had for years and years well he has it this is the way it's going to be made and it's just as valid as if there was a film and i i really do hope that for anyone listening to this that they do go out of their way to check it out even if they have to wait until it's complete to do so Uh, i'm certainly looking forward to checking out the third volume of it sons of el topo i think we could talk about it almost as long as we could talk about the actual films unfortunately uh we can't do that right now It, it might be something uh if we are still recording this podcast when that third volume comes out maybe we can come back to it once again and give our final thoughts on the sons of el topo That'd be cool. Yeah, I think I think it'd be really worthwhile. We have a lot of comic material. We're going to go over in a few episodes. I'm so excited about it. I really because I have this is me a whole new side of Jodorowsky for me because I've only seen his films and comics mm. are something that I'm quite new to. So it's really exciting to get to delve in this other side of him and how he sees the world through comics. Me too. Liam, yes, please. Yeah, same thing. I mean, I've like I said, I've read the In Call and I've read small bits of metabarons because for a while it was published in heavy metal but like anyone who's tried to follow a comic in heavy metal you you barely get a narrative you get like a few scenes and then it's moved on so i even though i've read multiple pages of metabarons i'm still not sure what it's about so i'm excited <laughs> to actually read it uh, it you know heavy metal is such a perfect melding for Jodorowsky's work it's something I was thinking about even when reading the Sons of El Topo it's like look this is just like you would expect in, in heavy metal except maybe a little less futuristic but yeah uh, we'll, we'll come back to the Sons of El Topo a lot more comics talk to come in future episodes but on the next episode of Jodorowsky we've got another heavy hitter maybe the heaviest hitter we're going to the Holy Mountain. Yeah, it's El, the El Topo follow-up. Well, the follow-up. The next film by Joe Dorowski after El Topo. Uh, after he had gotten a lot of attention in the U.S., he was able to gather together more money, more resources, more support. He was going to make the movie that <laughs> outdid all movies, and that movie is 1973's The Holy Mountain. We're going to be discussing it on the next episode of Joe Dorowski. I imagine that both of you are excited for us to delve into that. Julia, any thoughts on The Holy Mountain before we finish up for today? I'm so excited to talk about The Holy Mountain. I think it's his masterpiece, and I think it has one of the greatest endings in cinema 
period, full stop. Man, you think that there's a lot of content that we had to go through <laughs> to look at for El Topo. Uh, we ain't seen nothing yet. There's a lot that's been written and said about the Holy Mountain. I'm looking forward to delving into it. Liam, your thoughts, the Holy Mountain. Yeah, it's it's in my top 10 movies of all time. So there's a lot to live up to here, folks, on the next episode of Jodowski, The Holy Mountain. Folks, we did it. That is all we have to say about the film O.L. Topo, but that's not all we have to say about all other topics. You can find us all over the place. Uh, Julia Marchesi, what a wonderful co-host, and what a joy it is to have you join us. I don't want to reveal too much to everybody, but it recently was your birthday at the time that we're recording this. Happy birthday to you. Where can people find your work anywhere? Uh, you can find me at Julia C. Marchesi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I have a link tree on my account, so go to my podcast, Horror Movie Survival Guide. Uh, you can look at all of my different things. I am very active. I will say hello if you want to talk to me about Jodorowsky. I am all about it. She is about it, about it. Liam O'Donnell, you can also be found in a variety of places. Where are those? How can people reach you? Well, people should probably go to Cinepunks.com to check out uh, not only the latest episodes of this podcast, but uh, a whole family of podcasts from Cinepunks to Horror Business to Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe uh, to The Evil Eye and a, and, and a whole bunch of other podcasts, as well as uh, some great film writing, uh, merch, all kinds of stuff over there. Cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. Uh, they can also find Cinepunks on social media, as well as finding this podcast, Cinema Smorgasbord, on Twitter, uh, we're at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G, on Twitter. Uh, and I guess they can follow us, Doug. Where, where can they follow the two of us on Twitter? Well, Liam, you can be found at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L. E-Y. That's right. And if you enjoy uh, this podcast, you can check out other Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, including podcasts devoted to diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, as the career of Carol Kane, uh, at the work of, uh, of John Singleton. There's a, a whole variety that you can check out, as well as the work of Dick Miller, if you are a fan yeah, of Yeah, I was on are, the yeah. episode That's about right. Dick Miller. I love that, that guy. And it was the it basically it was the formative point where Jodowski evolved out of. So yeah, please check out our podcast over at cinema smorgasbord.com. But for now, it's time for us to say goodnight. On the next episode of Jodowski, we will be investigating the holy mountain. But for now, good night, everybody. Long days and pleasant nights. Night night. <laughs>